Hello, and welcome to the podcast. Podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brenda Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 46th episode of the Dottacast entitled A Crown of Gold, an analysis of a Game of Thrones Daenerys 5, in which Danny proves her medal to the Dothraki, and Viserys, well, he kind of suffers from a different kind of medal. That's a good, that's a good line, Evan. Good job. Why, thank you. This episode, as always, is brought to you by our small council, our hand of the king, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Timothy W., Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whisperers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warden of the North, and our newest member of the small council, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonstone. Thank you, counselors, very much. And just as a quick little sort of reminder, the quote-unquote small council is more informal than the small council we see in A Song of Ice and Fire. So you can have titles like Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonstone, or Ragged Michael, Warden of the North, if you so choose to join up with our patron level at our, at our small council level. Thank you, counselors, as always, and welcome to the Hammer. I'm excited to introduce our returning guest for this week. One of the primary authorities on magic in the world of A Song of Ice and Fire. You may know him from his live streams, from his compendiums on subjects ranging from Azora High and Lightbringer to uh, the Weirwood Net and the Grey King. Or you may know him from his excellent appearances on our episodes on Bran 3 and Daenerys 3 in A Game of Thrones. Please welcome back David Beers, a.k.a. Lucifer means Lightbringer. Thanks for coming on again, man. Hey, Jeff and Emmett. Thanks for having me back on. I was uh, hey. I was been pining away over here, so it's been great. <laughs> it's great to be back. Yeah, it's good to have you back, especially on this chapter of all chapters to have you coming back on. It's uh, definitely one where you can get your symbolism shit in deep, 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 deep symbolism shit in this chapter. I'm not sure if I begged you or threatened you to have me on this episode, <laughs> but it was somewhere in there. <laughs> tomato, tomato, really. Tomato, tomato, indeed. So excited to have David back. It's going to be a lot of fun doing this episode. Our spoiler warning, as we say in all episodes, we'll be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter Stamper chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from Sir Darren S., a Sworn Sword patron, and he asks, Hello, fellas. Along with the rest of the fandom, I listen to a wide range of sources about A Song of Ice and Fire lore and theories. While I tend to be quite skeptical of some, others pop out. Today, I found one talking about Daenerys' funeral pyre for Drogo actually being a ritual that was inceptioned into her via Quaith while dreaming. I do tend to give it some skepticism, but it does force me to either accept that Danny had unknowingly been manipulated to the correct <laughs> ritual, or she just chanced upon it. House words, fire and blood. Makes sense, am I right? Mm. Also, she does start having visions of Quaith after the birth of dragons, and if Quaith was manipulating her from the start, and the dragons brought magic into the world, it would make sense for stronger astral connections as well. Thoughts? Thanks, and you guys do great work. Yada, yada, yada. Usual praise that's always well-deserved. Thank you very much, Sir Darren, for the compliment and the question. And uh, our guest this week has written a lot about this particular scene, Daenerys' funeral pyre, uh, calling it the alchemical weddings, written some terrific essays on the subject as kind of the ultimate lightbringer scene and the ultimate expression of, of magic and humans' relationship to it that we've really seen in A Song of Ice and Fire. So I thought I'd kick it over to you, sir. What do you think about that idea that uh, Quaith was directly involved in some sense in giving Danny instructions for the funeral pyre? Cool. Yeah. Well, I'll, I've, I've written a bunch about this and so is Joe Magician. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll start off by shouting out Joe Magician. He's got a theory coming, which mm -hmm. he's talked about a couple times 
on a couple different live streams and he's doing the full write up. His theory is yes. actually that this um, this vision of Daenerys in the bonfire waking the dragons is is a vision that Targaryens and maybe even Valerians have been seeing for hundreds of years. And that a lot of the other Valerians, like Mad King Aerys, thinking that he would burn down King's Landing and transform himself into a dragon, or Arion Brightflame, who drank wildfire, thinking it would turn him into a dragon. Joe's theory is that, like, this, this, this Danny hatching the dragons event is so important and so seminal that like Valerians and Targaryens approaching it have been catching glimpses of it, not understanding what they're seeing. And so this may even go back all the way. Well, I don't want to give away too much, but, uh, it's going to be, that's the Joe Magician YouTube channel. Of course, I know Joe is pretty much family to you guys. So I know you don't mind the, yes. the healthy shout out to the Joe Magician YouTube channel. But as far as Quave, being responsible for some of Danny's dreams in a Game of Thrones. It's absolutely possible. Um, Quave is using the glass candle and we don't know how much she's able to use it before the dragons hatch because Quave definitely thinks that the dragons are part of what brought magic back into the world or makes it stronger. But there's an interesting line when, when Quave meets Danny in Karth, Koth, as they say, um, she, uh, she talks about, um, the, the fire mage who climbs the fire, fiery ladder. And he says, Oh, yeah, before yeah. the dragons came back, he could wake a little bit of fire from dragon glass, but he could never hope to climb the fiery ladder. And when she speaks of waking fire from dragon glass, I can only think about that as a lit glass candle. I mean, that's the most basic thing you can do with a glass candle is conjure a little bit of flame from it. And that's exactly what we see in Marwyn's study when we see the glass candle, mm -hmm. which is a functioning glass candle. And so to me, glass candle is a technology that might have been working before the dragons came back, according to Quay's own words. Now, here's the key. All right. So. At the end of A Dance with Dragons, when Danny totally trips out and she's wandering around in the grass sea, <laughs> she's eating the green berries, and she's, she's, she's hearing Jorah talk through the grass, Quaithe talks to her through a mask of starlight in the sky. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh -huh. and she used, it's the whisperings of stars is this phrase that happens a couple of times. And the stars whirl about her and they talk to her. And I think this is actually one of the clues that Quaithe is literally a member of the Church of Starry Wisdom, which was started by the Bloodstone Emperor and survives in port cities to this day. Marwyn is another guy mm -hmm. that might be a Starry Wisdom dude. Um, so check this out. In the, in, uh, back in a Game of Thrones, Danny has one last um, penultimate dragon dream before she actually hatches the dragons. And that's the one where yep. they're chanting, that's wake the dragon, wake the dragon. And she sees like six different vignettes. One of them includes her, you know, sprouting dragon wings from her own uh, back as she, you know, runs down these burning stones or whatever. So when that dream was over, it says... Uh, here's the last one. And she saw her brother Rhaegar, mounted on a stallion as black as his armor. Fire glimmered red through the narrow eyeslit of his helm. The last dragon, Sir Jorah's voice whispered faintly. The last, the last. Danny lifted his polished black visor. The face within was her own. Then it says, After that, for a long time, there was only the pain, the fire within her, and the whisperings of stars. She woke to the taste of ashes. Mm. So that little phrase right there makes me think, oh, the stars are whispering to her here. That might be like a little fingerprint of the Quave interaction on this dream. Mm -hmm. So that's what I got for that. It's possible. It's not a crazy theory at all. And if so, if that's true, that means that Quave is what? Basically trying to help guide Danny 
to know what to do to wake the dragons. And that's exactly what Quaithe should be doing and is trying to do elsewhere. So, I mean, that makes sense, right? Yeah, it does. My question is more of like the meta meta side is like, when did Quaithe kind of come into Martin's mind? So we know that among the chapters from A Game of Thrones, Danny's chapters were likely among the first that were finished just because Martin released all of them as, I believe, is it The Path of the Dragon or one of the a novella that he released in, in one of Asimov's magazines in the mid-90s. So it came out even before A Game of Thrones was released. And I do kind of wonder when Quaithe kind of came into being, so to speak, in in George's mind. And but that, that's not that's not to say this theory is wrong. What I, what I'm more thinking about is how Martin takes new ideas that he integrates into later books, Quaithe, uh, stuff like the Blackfires, which were not present at all in a Game of Thrones and a Clash of Kings until he imagined them in between Clash and Storm, um, and, and then utilizing that information and kind of retconning it slash kind of. Making sure. a, a more full canon, so to speak. You can see how. So I do kind of want. Yeah, go ahead. You can see how that could be possible here because it could be where Martin's simply imagining Danny getting visions from, you know, her ancestors or wherever. I mean, she does see those gemstone eyed kingly ghosts here in this, in that Wake the Dragon dream. So Martin is conceiving yeah. of some sort of quasi Valerian looking ancestors that are whispering to her. But yeah, he could have yeah. easily figured out Quave in between book one and two and then been like, okay, well, here's going to be my incarnation of this veloc- you know, voice from Lost to Shy who's trying to reach out to Danny from across the Gulf. It's in the same way that like he conceived of Bloodraven as simply a Targaryen green seer before he became Bloodraven, right? Yeah, that's that's definitely a strong possibility. I think uh, you brought up the dream Danny has in her ninth Game of Thrones chapter involving her running down that hallway with apparently her ancestors, Targaryens or Valyrians or Great Empire of the Dawn people, some version of those ding, people. Ding, 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 ding. Exactly. <laughs> chanting to her. And for me, that's where her knowledge comes from is this kind of innate psychological slash genetic connection that she has. That's kind of a parallel to the Starks with the Direwolves. I, I think if I was had to source her kind of uncanny knowledge in this book, I think it, it comes from there. I have to admit I'm somewhat biased because I'm not a fan of Quaithe. I think <laughs> she remi- she reminds me of video game characters, just like NPCs who give you info dumps and then vanish back into the ether. She's certainly spooky <laughs> and trippy. I like all her scenes. A little, yeah. But I, she doesn't seem strongly motivated to me. Like when I compare her to like the ghost of High Heart, who is she's a prophecy info dump character too, but she's also really sad and has this backstory with Jenny of Old Stones and like is afraid of Arya, and there's some real emotion there. For me, Quaith is just kind of Emmett, have it, a little, little, a little flat. I'm disappointed in you, man. Haven't you read Fire and Blood? We got Quaith's backstory. Uh, oh, do we now? Yeah. Is it? Ella, is it? Is it? Uh, what's her face? Yeah, the, Alyssa uh, Farman, dude. That's her. Alyssa Farman. That's Quaith. Yeah. No, maybe. I mean, it is. It is a decent little theory that came out of Fire and Blood. It's entirely possible. Yeah. But even then, if that gets revealed, my reaction is going to be okay because I'm not particularly invested in Quaith from the get go. It'll be a nice little thing, but. It's for me, I think it feels like when Martin was writing Clash of Kings, he was coming up with all these magical mentor characters who were going to guide the characters through this new world. You got Jojen Reed in the north. You got Jock and Hagar for Arya and Harrenhal. You have, of course, Melisandre above all else. I think I get the sense Quaith was invented as part of that process when Martin was like, okay, who's Danny's equivalent? Well, so are you, that character are you a fan be? of Quaith being Shara Seastar then? Have you heard that one? 
Uh, I mean, that does answer the question of what's Bloodraven up to with Danny. If Bloodraven is working with Shear and she's like, it's a division of labor between the two and she's working, you know, on behalf of Danny, that answers that question, which is convenient for me. Well, it creates this cool <laughs> triumvirate. Okay, sir, triumvirate. So you got Bloodraven <laughs> tutoring um, Bran. You've got... Um, right. You've got Quave tutoring Danny, and then their child, Melisandre, is tutoring John now. So it's like this weird family triangle of Bloodraven, Cher, Seastar, slash Quave, and Melisandre, who is their child. Uh, by the way, that's the other one I want to ask you about. Is I because I am more a fan of Melisandre being Bloodraven's child than I am of Quave being Cher Seastar. I do think that the the uh, the evidence for Mel being Bloodraven's kid is like at least worth considering. You know. I think it's worth considering too. Uh, although I, I look back at stuff like uh, Joanna Robinson brought this up in our episode about how much of the Winds of Winter did, and a Dream of Spring did season six and season seven spoil. Where great episode, uh, by the way, Hood. I loved that one. I appreciate it. Thanks. That was a, it was a very jo- cool episode. Well, all I mean, made, Joanna was carrying it. Amazing by Joanna. Yeah, yeah granted, <laughs> and, you know exactly. But one thing she had, she had brought up is that Chris Van Houten had said something to the effect of uh, to the to the guy who played Maester Crescent in in season two that she was hundreds of years old and that was something that Martin had told her and I kind of look back and I'm like well trying to do like the mental math here I'm not a math guy necessarily but I can do a little addition and subtraction once in a while um, but one of the, the aspects is that if she's hundreds of years old a, a child of Shira Sea Star and Blood Raven would only be hundred like something right one one hundred maybe yeah. at the at most yeah at, at most so you kind of like it does kind of like throw that into like a little bit of doubt although I love mm-hmm. that theory I, I love Yolk Boy's theory on it mm-hmm. and I've, I, I would consider myself consider myself a, a believer but there are I, I do have some skepticism in my own mind about it but you know well, uh, yeah I don't know I mean this is something I've talked about before, and David, you've talked about before, too, about it can be difficult to decide, okay, are these characters literally connected, or are they just parallels? Yes. Do right. they have uh, imagery yeah. in common because they're playing similar roles, or do they have imagery in common because they're related yeah. or the same yeah. person? Mm-hmm. That can be difficult to parse sometimes. Yes. <laughs> For me, I've always I've always liked Melisandre as this kind of parallel to Davos in a way where she actually did kind of rise from nothing and was yeah. just like like a random nobody. So I do have like have a romantic connection to that, but it could there's definitely some real strong symbolism in common that yeah, Yolk Boys talked about that you talked about connecting Melisandre to Blood Raven uh, and Shira Seastar. And so what but what would be cool to, about that is so if Shira this the story goes like this then essentially Shira Seastar pregnant with Blood Raven's child runs away from Westeros at some point. And that is what happened. She disappeared at a certain point. We don't know what happened to her. So mm-hmm. she leaves and hucks it all the way to the east, where she's basically an outcast, very much like Danny and Viserys were. And then she gives birth to her child, Melanie Lot 7, who apparently gets sold into slavery. This sounds like yeah. Shara Seastar fell on some pretty hard times. So this sure. it still is that same story, Emmett, where they fall down oh, that's to, true. You know, to the bottom rung to where she's a slave, but then grows up and eventually probably becomes aware of who she is and embraces, you know, sorcery and extends her life and is using whatever else. And yeah. That's entirely possible. Yeah, I mean, she's still come from economic nothing. I like the idea of her developing her powers on her own more than I do like the idea of her locking her back into those bloodlines again. But it, it's it's entirely possible. We're gonna, Obviously, I think Martin has indicated we're going to see some heavy flashback stuff with Melisandre. And that she's going to have a lot of chapters in the Winds of Winter. So I I think that's going to definitely come into play. And we could get a lot more of this. Uh, But to circle back around to to Sir Darren's question, I think we're coming down on this. It's entirely possible that Quaithe had some involvement in this. It really depends on on when Quaithe came into the writing process from Martin 
and whether, as as Jeff said, uh, she was kind of backfilled into that. So that could, uh, but I, I, I think that that's a strong possibility. And I think you make a good point, Emmett, that there is a certain amount of it that has to be coming from Danny's own ancestors and her heritage, simply because we see those gemstone emperors. And I mean, I don't know. I don't. I'm not a fan of like all the dreams being elaborate constructs of Blood Raven and Quave, and none of them are real. Or pers- <laughs> I agree. Like, I just think that's going too far. So it's a question Me of too. like yep. where the tampering is and how much meddling it is. So, Yep, good call. I'm sure that the Winds of Winter, which of course is coming out next week, will elaborate much more on the impact of Quaith and Melisandre and all these char- and Blood Raven and all these characters and whether the bloodlines are intersecting or whether it's more like symbolic and thematic parallels between the two. And if, if not that, then Fire and Blood Volume 2, which comes out the week after that. Well, exactly. And then Dunkin' Egg 4, 5, 6, and 7 right after that. Well, we will keep that background in mind as we uh, progress through Song of Ice and Fire. And of course, Elamo will be back for many more chapters beyond the one that we're doing right now. But he is here for this chapter, which is all about a Game of Thrones Daenerys 5. And, you know... We're back in Vase Dothrak. We haven't been here in a minute. We, we, we are interrupting our regularly scheduled Netizen Deep Shit broadcast to bring you Daenerys is also in this book, and so is Viserys, but not for long. So here is the synopsis for Game of Thrones Daenerys 5. A heart that Khal Drogo's Bloodbriars just pulled from the body of a horse steams in front of Daenerys. Dothraki Valentine's Day... Nah, afraid not. You see, Daenerys needs to eat the bloody heart in front of Khal Drogo and the Dosh Kaleen. And she can't flinch, look afraid, or do the normal things that one might do when told that they have to eat a raw horse heart. So Daenerys takes the heart and plunges her teeth into the organ, tearing through the tough flesh and feeling warm blood filling her mouth. Delicious, but actually not. The taste is awful. But the Dashkaleen believed that it would make her unborn child strong and male, not weak, deformed, or female. So Danny had trained like an Olympic eater, eating bowls of half-clotted blood and chewing strips of dried horse horse flesh until her jaw ached. And she had finally starved herself for a full day and night to help better the odds that she could keep the horse flesh down. Oh, man. Yeah, right? Oh, but hey, it's been a full 30 seconds since I last told you about eating a horse heart. So let's get right back into the meat of the chapter, shall we? Get it? Meat of this chapter. Don't worry. I'm dying over here. So the heart was all muscle and Danny was gnawing at it with her teeth and chewing a mouthful for a long time. She couldn't cut the meat because steel was not permitted inside of Vastothrak. Man, I kind of wonder, why is this getting brought up right now? Is this foreshadowing? Is it? Emmett LMO, is this foreshadowing? I don't know. I don't know. I frankly think you're reading far too much into it, Jeff. Uh, probably so. Not everything has a double meaning, Jeff. <laughs> so, so she was ripping through the flesh with her teeth, her face smeared with blood. Awesome. All the while, Khal Drogo stood over her with his uncut dark braid and bronze skin, and his chest was bare. Man, he looks fab. Whatever she wanted, whenever she wanted to quit, she just looked at that man and felt her strength returning. Me too, brother. Me too, sister. Me too. By the end, she saw a pride building in Drogo's eyes, and finally she takes her last bite of horse heart, and it's over. I know, you really wanted me to keep going, talking about eating horse meat and horse heart, but alas, all good things must come to pass. Kalaka dathre mrana, Danny shouts. A prince rides in me. She'd been practicing that phrase in Dothraki for days. Oh, how, how, how long have you been practicing that phrase? Because that was excellent. For, for days. Okay. <laughs> As well, like Daenerys for days. The, the, I, I just know that the fans of Nauticast will demand a moment to appreciate your Dothraki accent. I mean, that was really good. All right, fans, take a moment here. One second. All right, moment is done. We're moving on. 
In response, the oldest crone of the Dashkalin repeats the phrase back to Daenerys, and the rest of the Dashkalin take up the cry, adding, A boy! A boy! A strong boy! Bells ring, war horns sound, and old women chant. It's a lot to take in for Daenerys, but at least the ceremony is over, right? No, actually, no, it's not quite over yet. There's this whole prophecy bit to get to. Slaves throw fragrant grass onto the fire in the pit, and the oldest crone closes her eyes as smoke rises through the tent. Silence falls as Drogo fearfully puts his hand on Danny's arm. Everyone anxiously awaits the prophecy. What's it going to be? What's it going to be? And then, finally, the crone opens her eyes. I have seen his face and heard the thunder of his hooves. As swift as the wind he rides, behind him his calisar covers the earth, men without number, with arrax shining in their hands like blades of razor grass. Fierce as the storm this prince will be, his enemies will tremble before him, and their wives will weep tears of blood and rend their flesh in grief. The bells in his hair will sing his coming, and the milkmen in the stone tents will fear his name. And then the old woman trembles and looks at Danny as if she was afraid. That's a little bit weird, right? Yeah, a little bit weird. We'll talk about that. The prince is riding and he shall be the stallion who mounts the world. Everyone takes up the cry, the stallion who mounts the world. And the crone asks Daenerys what name she'll give to her unborn child. He shall be called Rago, Danny responds. Again, everyone chants the name, Rago, Rago, Rago. Drogo picks Daenerys up and carries her down the god's way towards the lake known as the womb of the world with his blood riders and everyone else in tow. As they travel, Danny notices the Dashkaleen behind her and thinks about who these women were. You see, these old women of the Dashkaleen were the widows of Kals who were sent to Vaes Dothrak to rule over the city after their husbands died. Fortunately for them, they had real power in Vaes Dothrak. Unfortunately for them, they really didn't have a choice in having power in Vaes Dothrak. Once their hubs were dead, they became part of the Dashkaleen, and it kind of gives Danny a chill to think that might happen to her. Behind the Dashkaleen, other calls, Kalaka, servants, and slaves all follow Drogo. They pass the stolen statues of, of gods and heroes. What is meaning, name Rego? Call Drogo asks in the common tongue. Danny had been teaching Drogo how to speak words in the common tongue, but Drogo's not all that sharp in speaking the Westerosi way. Regardless, Daenerys tells Drogo about her brother Rhaegar and how fierceful word he was, and how he was the last of the dragons. Drogo looks at her all Dothraki-like and smiles, telling her that it is a good name. Daenerys, wife, moon of my life. Uh, that one was not a very good read, but that's okay. <clears throat> They arrive at the lake known as the Womb of the World, where apparently the first dude had emerged from the depths, riding on the back of his first horse. I really actually forgotten about this when, uh, when I went back and reread this chapter for this, this chapter synopsis. And what the fuck does that mean? I'll, ask, I'll know about that a little bit later on. Anyways, Danny and Drogo get naked together, and then in Southern Baptist style, they baptize themselves in the sacred water. They get out of the lake, and then in decidedly non-Southern Baptist fashion, get it on in front of everyone. After Drogo nuts, Doria comes forward and drapes a cloak around Daenerys. Drogo gets dressed, and then it's back down the God's Way for a party time in the, in the Silk Pavilion. Fires, flames, and roasting meat await the party as they enter the crowded hall with 5,000 people all crammed together, eating and drinking and shouting toast to Danny and the stallion that mounts the world. Drums and horns are also playing while half-naked women spin and dance on top of low tables, and yeah, again, it's a lot. But at least there'd be no Arax or swords here where blades and bloodshed is for was forbidden. Is this important? I don't know. I don't know. It keeps being brought up over and over again. Drogo dismounts his horse and takes his place on the high bench with a few calls and Drogo's blood riders below him. Danny also dismounts and looks for Viserys. Ah, Viserys, where have you gotten off to? She doesn't see him, but she does see Jorah Mormont in the hall. But she does see Jorah Mormont in the middle of the hall near the fire pit, 
a place of some honor that he's given on account of his skill as a swordsman. Danny tells Jiqui to fetch him, and he comes over all polite. Danny offers him a place by her side. Jorah accepts. Danny asks after Viserys, and yeah, here we go. Viserys went off that morning to the Western Market to drink some wine and talk some sellsword caravan guards into joining his great army to invade Westeros. Danny wonders if that's really all that smart, given that sellswords are fickle and fond of betrayal. Maybe you should have gone with him, Jorah. Nah, he'll be fine, because no one may carry a blade here or shed a man's blood in Vase Dothrak. I don't know why this keeps getting emphasized, but it really feels like it's going to mean something by the end. Maybe. We'll see. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Viserys is safe. You see, thieves get strangled by huge eunuchs with wisps of silk. Hopefully Viserys will be smarter than that and not steal anything, but will he? Uh, no, he will not be smart enough. Jorah informs Daenerys that Viserys attempted to take Danny's dragon eggs, but he threatened to cut Viserys' hand off if he tried. Danny is shocked. Why would he do that? Well, because they're incredibly valuable and rare, just like diamonds, and he could buy sellswords with those dragon eggs, enough for his great army. Then he should have them. He does not need to steal them. He had only to ask. He is my brother. And my true king, Danny says somewhat reluctantly. Yeah, sure, Jorah says. He's your brother, but that's about it. Danny goes on about how Viserys kept her safe when both their father and mother had died, and beyond that, he had given her an identity, a Targaryen identity. He is all that Daenerys has left. Nah, not anymore, Jorah says. You belong to the Dothraki now, and you have a Dothraki baby in your belly, the stallion that will mount the world. What's that all about, Danny asks. People were kind of shouting it at me, but she has really no idea what it means. Well, Jorah responds, it's part of a prophecy. It's the prophecy that says that the Call of Calls will unite the Dothraki into a single Kalasar and conquer the world. Oh, I named him Brago, a name to make the usurper's blood run cold. And just then, who should appear but Viserys here, of course, to wish Daenerys all the happiness and kindness in the world and embrace her and her child, right? Right? No, a fucking course not. This is Viserys. Have you read A Song of Ice and Fire before? I, I, I mean, I haven't. I'm illiterate. But some of you guys probably have once or twice before. Swaggering and stumbling along due to the wine, he arrives in his sweat stained silks, broken boots, and a long sword on his belt. Oh no, has this been spoken of before? Is that bad? I don't know. Everyone starts cursing and swearing at Viserys and Dothraki as the music dies and dread encircles Daenerys' heart. She orders Jorah to get the fuck over to Viserys and stop him. He can have the dragon eggs, just Jesus, what the fuck, Viserys, what are you doing? Well, Viserys starts shouting for Daenerys, saying that he's come for the feast and how dare everyone eat before him, because he's a very great and mighty king, of course, and nobody eats before the king. He searches for Danny's face next to a fire all drunken shit. Jorah reaches him and tries to talk to him, but Viserys shoves him away, shouting about how no one can touch, no one can touch the dragon. Meanwhile, Drogo has taken notice of Viserys and is mocking him to the other cows around him. And then Viserys takes notice of Drogo. Cal Drogo, I'm here for the feast. Oh, but are you Viserys? Hey, Cal Drogo, I'm here Cal for Drogo. the feast. We, we've all been there before. <laughs> all three of us in this podcast have been in that, that situation in our lives. Okay. I'm straight edge. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, okay. Okay. <laughs> I, personally, I personally have never been drunk enough to talk shit to anybody that looks like Cal Drogo, but that's, you know. Excellent point. That's a good point. I don't think I have either. Uh, anyways, so Drogo says, okay, well, yeah, you're here for the feast. Fantastic. Go sit your fucking happy ass down at the corner of the room with the old men, young boys, and broken men. The place of dishonor. 
Well, that won't do, Viserys declares. I'm a king. Yeah, you're a king, all right, Drogo says. A sorefoot king. And that's your place. Let's get the silver boy a cart to ride around in. Everyone laughs at Viserys, and I just want to take a very brief moment, a very brief one, to say that in this one instant, I pity Viserys. I don't sympathize with him, but I very much pity him. He's getting laughed at by everyone. Jorah's shouting at him, and the two men are kind of wrestling a bit. Jorah knocks Viserys over, and then Viserys bounces to his feet with a sword in hand. Is that bad? I don't know. We're about to find out. Everyone shrieks curses at Viserys, and Daenerys knows what that means. Danny makes a cry in terror, and finally Viserys hears her, turns, and sees her. Danny begs him to put the blade aside, to take up some food and drink and have a seat. And you can have the dragon eggs. Jorah joins in telling him he's going to get them all killed. But no, they can't kill us. They can't shed blood here in the sacred city. But I can. He puts the point of his sword against Danny's breast and then traces the line down and then traces a line down to her stomach. I want what I came for. I want the crown he promised me. He bought you, but he never paid for you. Viserys is going to take Daenerys back, but don't worry, Drogo. He'll leave him with his son after he cuts the boy out from Danny's belly. Viserys, the man who had been her brother, weeps and laughs at the same time, saying this, and Lord above, we are getting into some intense shit here in this chapter. Jiqui doesn't want to translate for Drogo, but Danny tells her not to worry. She'll do it for her. When she's done speaking, Drogo replies, and Viserys asks what Drogo said. He says you shall have a splendid golden crown that men shall tremble to behold. And finally, finally, Viserys smiles and lowers his blade. That was all he wanted. What was promised? Drogo reaches out for Danny, and Danny slips away from Viserys as Drogo's bloodriders jump Viserys, shattering his wrist and pulling the sword from his hand. Viserys shouts and screams about being a very brave dragon and some such, and Drogo removes his belt of golden medallions from around his waist. He dumps the belt into a pot, which is then put over a fire pit. The gold turns red, losing its shape. Fire dances in Drogo's eyes. A slave hands a pair of mittens to Drogo. Jorah begs Danny to turn away, but she will not. Viserys finally looks at Daenerys, pleading like a very brave dragon, but Daenerys says nothing. When the gold is half-melted, Drogo reaches into the flames, yanking the cauldron up. Crown here! A crown for Cart King! Drogo upends the pots on Viserys' head, and I really can't do this any better justice than Martin does, so I'm just going to read to the end of the chapter. The sound Viserys made when that hideous iron helmet covered his face was like nothing human. His feet hammered a frantic beat against the dirt floor, slowed, stopped. Thick globs of molten gold dribbled down onto his chest, setting the scarlet silk to smoldering. Yet no drop of blood was spilled. He was no dragon, Danny thought, curiously calm. Fire cannot kill a dragon. And my God, that is a Game of Thrones Daenerys 5, our first major death in all of A Song of Ice and Fire, and quite literally a hell of a way for Viserys Targaryen to go out. So let's have a brief moment of silence for Viserys Targaryen. Moment's over. Nobody's sad. A.K.A. And Kyle he- Regat, the card king. Kyle Regat. Exactly. Regat. Damn, I didn't know Jeff had this just Dothraki flair to him. This is we're just learning things with this episode. It's great. Oh, come on. Is it is it a surprise? Let's think about this here. A bunch of <laughs> a bunch of dude bros riding around like kicking ass wherever they you go, know, taking names. Come on, Mal. This is making a disturbing amount of sense. I mean. <laughs> 
Anywho, so last time we covered a Daenerys chapter, Daenerys IV, we focused on the interplay between her conflicting cultural identities, exiled Targaryen princess and assimilating Khaleesi, as Drogo's Khalasar was arriving in Vaestothrak. This chapter is about that conflict coming to a head. Danny takes her most significant step yet towards establishing identity among the Dothraki, and we get our most intimate look at Dothraki culture so far. Then Viserys, who of course represents Danny's connection to Westeros, Valyria, and House Targaryen, shatters Dothraki taboos in order to violently assert his cultural superiority, and promptly dies for his trouble. <laughs> it's an extremely cathartic chapter in multiple respects, from the heart-eating scene to the crown of gold at the end, and it something I really like about it is... It perfectly matches the dramatic tone of the King's Landing chapters that are dominating this part of the book. The focus of this part of Game of Thrones is really on Ned's chapters, the, the revelations he's learning, the decisions he's making. And it's, they're, they're very kind of dramatic, intense chapters. And Danny Five has the responsibility of dragging our eyes halfway across the world to something else. And it pulls that off because it's just as dramatic and just as urgent and vivid. And above all, as Jeff said... Danny Five gives us the first major death scene in the Song of Ice and Fire, with apologies to Jory Cassell. And right. it's it's one that strongly resonates across the series as a whole, symbolically as well as politically, which is why, of course, it's a perfect one to cover with LML. So, <laughs> opening thoughts, sir, what do you think of uh, A Game of Thrones Daenerys Five? Well, like I was telling uh, Emmett when we were chatting, or I guess maybe I was telling both you guys when we were chatting before the show, you know, this is kind of one of those uh, touchstone chapters that that really, like, I mean, probably 85% of my theories that I've ever made, you know, flow through this chapter. I mean, there's, it's, it's all here. And so I got to like take a deep breath and just sort of gather my thoughts. But no, we're only, we're only going to get into a little bit of, of what's going on in here. But there's a lot of what Martin does when he has these important archetypal scenes like Danny's waking dragons in the bonfire or Bran's, you know, coma dream that we broke down that one time. They, you know, they frequently touch on a lot of important components of like the War for the Dawn and Azor High and Nissa Nissa and the Night's King. Like Martin basically has this, um, this initial puzzle of, of these, these important Dawn Age events, or you could say long night events that have kind of shaped the world that comes after. And we all expect them to be replayed or answered or rhymed with, you know, with the key elements uh, in the end game of this book. And so this is kind of one of those scenes. Um, and, and so actually think about this. Like, so the Tower of Joy is this puzzle, right? It's this puzzle that it happened like 18 years ago and it very much set the stage for everything that's happening now. Everything goes back to that war, Robert's Rebellion, the lies and mysteries that are wrapped up in it. It shapes so much of the initial plot and it's still shaping the plot. Well, essentially the, the same thing is going on with the War for the Dawn events too. And so when we get these really important scenes, they often touch on everything. And so there's like a lot going on here, but let's just talk about it as a normal scene before we go all crazy with, with uh, symbolism and stuff. Like, I really always enjoy your summaries, Jeff. I think they're getting better and better and funnier and funnier. So I just, you know, they were all, Agreed. Always, Agreed. always good, but it's definitely now like one of the highlights. Like, I just look forward to that part where we're going to get the the 10 minute or so seven minute beef fish synopsis. So there's some, you get, you <laughs> have a good, you have a good style. I, I, I love that. I love that part. So I appreciate it. Thanks man. There's a lot. There's, it's fun to write. So there's basically three parts to this chapter, right? There's the horse heart eating, there's the womb in the world. And then there's the final scene in back in the fest, uh, in the tent where Viserys gets killed. And there's a lot of echoes between all three scenes. Um, there's a lot of themes that are being carried through. And Evan makes a great point. It's definitely, 
if you were sort of reading Daenerys chapters and wondering what they had to do with the story or like waiting for them to go somewhere, this is kind of the chapter when it all explodes. You're like, wait a minute, we've, we've yeah. got this gruesome death. Now you're wondering, well, what is Daenerys now? You know, she's taking moves to, you know, become empowered and obviously assimilating to the Dothraki. You're starting to wonder if maybe this Dothraki invasion of Westeros is something that could actually happen. And you're wondering about who Danny's child is going to be. So this is definitely the chapter where you're getting fully hooked into Danny's plot. Absolutely. And it starts so vividly with this heart eating scene. I love that we don't open with Danny practicing her lines or being told what to do by the Dusculine. We open with the heart in her face. We open mid ritual with, which has the effect of immediately plunging us into the vivid sights and Smells and sounds and tastes of what's happening, as, as Jeff so eloquently described. The chapter starts off, The heart was steaming in the cool evening air when Khal Drogo said it before her, raw and bloody. His arms were red to the elbow. Behind him, his blood riders knelt on the sand beside the corpse of the wild stallion, stone knives in their hands. Again, this chapter has the job of distracting you from the really critical stuff going on at King's Landing. And that's a great way to start to immediately make you go, oh, okay. Wait, what? <laughs> what's happening here? <laughs> What's going on? The horse has just been butchered, and it opens the same way in that regard as Tyrion Four, a, a chapter we covered a while back, which also opens with the horse being butchered on the road in the Mountains of Moon. But that was for survival. This is ritualistic and is framed that way even before you know what's happening. Like the fact that uh, he's laying the heart before her, the stone knives, you immediately get the sense that this is a ritual of some kind, even before you know exactly what's happening or why. And that's just designed to get our stomachs churning because, oh, we know this is important, but we don't know why yet. And that's, I think that's a great way of starting this chapter. So, yeah, I agree. Go ahead. So the, it's funny that you you start to hit on the, well, so the, there's two things that you said that really make me excited. So one is the the very basic writer technique of what they call in late. And sometimes it's in late out early. And it's basically means that you don't start the chapter with Danny practicing. You start right in the middle. You, you join the chapter already in progress. So you're in late, but then you recapitulate the moments that led up to that moment while the moment is happening. And this is a staple yeah. of Martin's writing. And it's the, yeah. if you are an amateur writer or a beginning writer, this is one of the first things that you figure out that makes your writing start to sound like real writing. It's like you start to figure yeah. this trick yeah. out and you're like, Oh, this is badass. I'm a badass now. Like this, see, this is cool. This scene starts great. <laughs> like you get this first line of like, yeah, she's biting into the horse flesh. It grabs you right away. And then Martin is great at backfilling, you know, you know, recollecting uh, what what happened. And he basically does this on almost every chapter. It's it's actually a standard technique for him. So I'm glad you pointed that out. And then the second one is you talk about the sort of ritualistic vibe. I'd even say it's a shamanic vibe that's going on. We've got a, one, a yes, one-eyed yes. seer looking into the mists of the future, the stone knives. Um, there's even some, there's a lot of hints about Odin actually going on and not just the one-eyed <laughs> thing, but the whole idea of hearing the, the hoofbeats of the stallion that mounts the world. That's actually a, re um, a reference to Sleipnir. And Sleipnir is is a horse that, okay. that Odin rides. It's basically a, a, a metaphor for astral projection. Odin rides Sleipnir or Sleipnir through the nine realms. He can ride Sleipnir in and out of hell. Can go anywhere because this isn't really a horse. It's actually a metaphor for astral projection. And the reason why is because all across like 
northern um, Eurasia, essentially. This this myth exists of the shamanic horse, and it has to do with the drums. So what happens is when when the shaman, and by the way, the word shaman actually comes from northern Siberia, from the Tungus people of northern hmm. Russia. And so they have this myth. And basically what it what it means is that when a shaman wants to go into a trance, one of the most important elements of that is is this drumming. And the drumming can go on for hours, but it it helps, you know, to put you in a certain state of mind. And so they began to refer to that drumming as the hoofbeats of a horse that the shaman rides into the into the other realms. And so this is where Sleipnir comes from. It's something that I'm actually exploring in the last two um mythical astronomy episodes. But that's what's going on here. You see a one-eyed seeress talking about, I can hear the thunder of these hooves of this of this prince that's riding that isn't really here. So it's it's some pretty cool stuff. Yeah, I mean, the, you can see where Martin is basing Dothraki culture on this wide array of cultures. I mean, people have been like, oh, the Dothraki are just Mongols, are, are fantasy Mongols. But Martin says, no, they're, they're not just Mongols. They're, they have elements of, of Mongol culture, of course. Uh, but they also have cultures across the Eurasian steppe, which, which was very much uh, dominated by by the use of horses and by the steppe grasslands and finding feeding for for your horses. And that extends from Siberia and all the way on the Pacific coast. I mean, the the Mongols and the Yalans and the Huns and these kind of horse riding peoples extended all the way to the gates of Rome itself. You know, by the by the by the fifth century. So you have this long cultural heritage which. Is going into um, into effect here in, in Martin's writing of of the Dothraki and Dothraki culture and customs. Uh, one of the things I think is interesting about this this thing, though, is is that I get the uh, the sense that with Daenerys kind of practicing and kind of ensuring that she can actually ingest the heart, that it's kind of like gaming the system, so to speak, a little bit. Um, you can kind of get the sense here that. Much like this is a weird comparison, but much like Loris had, rides a horse in heat, that he's gaming the tourney back when the hands tourney. That we have Daenerys here, kind of gaming the system, so she gets a favorable outcome from the prophetic vibes that the Dosh Kaleen put out. I think that's something that we're we're seeing here. Oh, I think it reminded me of like those old, uh, like ten, maybe fifteen years ago. They had those challenge shows, like Fear Factor and whatnot, and they would oh, they God. would give you three like obstacle course challenges, which you know I would be like, oh yeah, I could do that. And then the last one's like drink a bowl. <laughs> of clotted blood i'm like i'm out i'm out but the, the, the contestants would do that though they would practice you know eating whatever disgusting thing that they had to eat for the show so i mean that's that's what it's what it reminded me of yeah that's great or it's like a hot ones that show on youtube where they make celebrities eat wings until they just collapse and can't keep going with the interview that's just basically this but yeah you make a great point. There are these connections between apocalypse and the thunder of hooves that we see elsewhere in Martin's work when, like, the pale mare comes up in a dance with dragons, that the pale mare is riding and bringing illness with it. And, of course, that's connected to not only Norse myths, but there's resonance with uh, certain Christian and biblical end times myths as well there. And I think something something that I really like in Martin's writing in general, and, of course, he's not the only one to do this, but the way he intermingles like Norse myths with Christian myths and doesn't kind of separate them into blocks, but merges them together and finds the the resonances between them. I think that's something really interesting and something that 
fantasy, especially as a genre, can be a really good vessel for is tying yeah. these myths together and and conflating the two. So that's that's really strong. Well, stuff. I mean, the Norse crossed Christianity and Norse myth very heavily, and that mm-hmm. exactly one of the re- exactly. one of the reasons why Christianity was received so well amongst. Uh, the the Norsemen was because Odin and Jesus have so much in common. Odin <laughs> was basically crucified on Yggdrasil. He was he was hung on the tree in order to defeat death, see the runes, and gain all this magic power. And Jesus was crucified on a tree to defeat death, to grant this new power of resurrection that he can then bestow upon his followers. So there's a lot in common there. And that's why, like, when the Christians showed up and they're like, yeah, we worship this guy who gained power by being hung on a cross. And they're like, I like the cut of your jib there, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) I can get down with that. On a more... Precisely. On a more grounded level, talking about cultural assimilation, bringing up that subject there, passing this test is an important step, obviously, for Danny's assimilation into Dothraki. She had to train for this, as Jeff said. It's not easy. And she is pulling strength, interestingly, both from her husband, from Drogo, looking at her, she says, you know, gives him gives her strength, looking at him gives her strength. And Drogo, of course, represents her Dothraki identity, but she's also drawing on her internal self-conception of the dra- as a dragon, thinking, I'm the blood of the dragon. That's her Targaryen identity. So, as we've seen in Danny's chapters so far in this book, she's trying to knit the two together into this new identity, into this new person and way of being she can express. And the name Rago perfectly sums that up. I like that she came up with that apparently without Drogo knowing beforehand, because he asks her after the ritual, what does that mean, this name Rago? So, that appears to be entirely her own invention, and that name, of course, is half Targaryen and half Dothraki. It's Ray from Rhaegar and Go from presumably Drogo and other Dothraki mm-hmm. names that sound like that. So that shows that Dany is not just experiencing the fusion of these identities. She is now trying to actively control it and dictate it and say, okay, this is who I am now. This is how I'm going to be a Targaryen Khaleesi, which is a new kind of person, really, if you think about it. So are you ready for your... It's a new identity. Are you ready for your first clue that Dany is the stallion? Yes, bring it on. So it's right here. We're here. So Rago, she names the baby after Rhaegar, right? And she pictures Rago as like, you know, doing what Rago could not, just like Viserion is supposed to do what Viserys could not. So she's honoring her brother. But in a way, Rago is like the rebirth of Rhaegar because of the name. And so here's the thing, though. Yes, absolutely. When she she looks in and sees... Uh, Rhaegar in her Wake the Dragon dream, she lifts the visor and sees herself because she is actually Rhaegar reborn. She is also the stallion who mounts the world. So she's giving this name, she's giving Rhaegar's name to the stallion who mounts the world, but actually she is Rhaegar reborn. She is the last dragon and she is the one who will mount the world, whatever the fuck that means. It means a lot of things, but (laughs) so there you go. Yeah, no, that's, that's a terrific point. I think that even though, as I'm saying, Danny is kind of taking over more agency in her storyline, she is still projecting it to a large extent onto her son because she has to, uh, given that both cultures she's working within, she can't really fully emerge as her own protagonist in her own story and doesn't really until the end of the book. But you can definitely see it being built in here. And it's interesting to compare that to the Dash Kaleen, who, of course, also their presence also makes this our deepest dive yet into the Dothraki society. The, Doth- the Dash Kaleen are the keepers of tradition and legitimacy, and they are also a prophetic collective semi-hive mind, like the Green Seers in the North or the Undying in Karth. They're not as like straight-up psychedelic and far-gone as human beings as the Green Seers or the Undying are. Like The Dash Kaleen are still like distinct individual physical humans. <laughs> they're, they're not quite as sorcerous, but they're, they're in the same vein. And 
something that's come up as a subject of debate is whether or not this turns the Dothraki into a surprise matriarchy, basically. We've seen them as this kind of intensely militarized patriarchal culture so far, but then we get these women who keep the tradition alive and ultimately dictate a lot of major moves, which has similarities to certain Native American cultures and and cultures on 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 the Eurasian steppe, as you said, as well. But of course, it's worth noting the quote, if she choked on the blood or retched up the flesh, the omens were less favorable. The child might be stillborn or come forth weak, deformed, or female. <laughs> the fact that the fact that female is being associated with weak and deformed here indicates that this is still very much a militarized patriarchal society, which will be fundamentally transformed by uniting under a Khaleesi and a Khaleesi who refused to join the Dash Kaleen. This this is part of how you know that it's going to be a really big deal when Danny takes over. It's also like nice. Kind of- we also have to like kind of look at it too in terms of that the Dash Kaleen are not here by their own agency. They're not like volunteers to be in charge of this city. They were forced here. I mean, when when you get a little bit farther into Danny's storyline in in a, in a Game of Thrones, it becomes apparent that what happens is that after the call dies, then his blood riders then take the widowed wife of the former call and forcibly drag her back to face Dothrak in order for her to become uh, a part of the Dash Kaleen. So. There is an interesting element here where there is some female leadership in Vase Dothrak, but it's over the supervision and under the guise of a, of the patriarchal male culture that is dominating the Dothraki and that the Dothraki men are the ones who are ensuring that these women are actually becoming part of the Dash Kaleen. There's no real freedom to make that decision for their own. They're all kind of forced slave-like into, the, into this culture, into this society. So, interestingly, just yesterday I did a live stream with Aziz from History of Westeros on my channel, and it was a follow-up on the Great Empire of the Dawn research that we've done in the past. And uh, it, it turns out that there's a fair amount of evidence that the ancestors of the Dothraki came over the Bones Mountains. Um, it says straight out mm-hmm. in the World of Ice and Fire that they have ancient memories of fleeing over the Bones Mountains. Then it goes on to tell you that the Bones Mountains are nicknamed the Bones because they are littered with bones. The bones of men and horses and livestock and every kind of beast and this and that. And it goes on to say, you know, were they fleeing some great apocalypse? You know, we have, who knows? We don't know. But they're, they left their bones to mark their passing. So there's this whole section about how tons of people a migration, a mass migration of some kind in the ancient past, maybe more than one, passed through the bones from east to west. Then we're told the Dothraki have memories of coming over the bones. And when you go on the other side of the bones, what do you find? You find another horse lord, I mean, Zorse lord culture. And they're <laughs> true. And the thing is, the Jogos Nai are very much more matriarchal. The moon singers dictate almost mm-hmm. every aspect of society. They have great power. They also have gender fluidity where the moon's uh, woman can be a jot, a war leader, or a man can be a moon singer, but they have to live as a woman or a man if they choose to do that. So they have the whole gender fluidity built in and like I said it's very much more matriarchal they don't do war on each other only other peoples and so when uh, put it together and what you have is this this base this long ago distant relationship long ago common ancestor of a horse riding culture that came over the mountains and so clustered around the womb of the world and the mother and the mother of mountains, we find remnants of matriarchy. We find the Dosh Kaleen all yeah, powerful. Okay. It's forbidden for the uh, the Dothraki to kill each other, just like the Jogos Nai. It's forbidden for them to kill each other. And then you have this womb of the world and the mother of mountains. So all these feminine symbols clustered around there. And so that's that was my surmise was that here we find the seeds of their older culture essentially. Hmm. I really like cool. that a lot. 
that dovetails really, really well with uh, yeah the geography, like you say, the culture, and with Danny coming back. And speaking of the womb of the world, after we progress on from the uh, the heart eating scene. We, uh, which also worth noting, it's that Joffrey calls his sword heart eater. That's a, it's kind of interesting, <laughs> interesting parallel to this scene. But after that, we go to the lake called the womb of the world and we get this scene that I, I really want to uh, let LMO loose on because it, it ties so well <laughs> into the, the imagery and themes you talk about. And I'm just going to read it real quick. They rode to the lake the Dothraki called the womb of the world, surrounded by a fringe of reeds, its water still and calm. A thousand thousand years ago, Jaqui told her, the first man had emerged from its depths, riding upon the back of the first horse. The procession waited on the grassy shore as Danny stripped and let her soiled clothing fall to the ground. Naked, she stepped gingerly into the water. Eerie said the lake had no bottom, but Danny felt soft mud squishing between her toes as she pushed through the tall reeds. The moon floated on the still black waters, shattering and reforming as her ripples washed over it. Goose pimples rose on her pale skin as the coldness crept up her thighs and kissed her lower lips. The stallion's blood had dried on her hands and around her mouth. Danny cupped her fingers and lifted the sacred waters over her head, cleansing herself and the child inside her, while the cow and the others looked on. So just a beautiful passage on its own, right, obviously, but... When you, once you start uh, digging into the imagery here, there's some very interesting parallels that I, I thought our, our esteemed guest could clue us into. Yeah, yeah, where do I start? Ah, oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with the basics. It's a moon that appears to be shattering mm-hmm. and reforming in the lake, right? So you can picture it. The moon is low on the horizon, and so its reflection is on the surface of the lake, but the ripples are breaking up the the image of the moon. So it's literally shattering and sort of reforming as the ripples move. But of course, as we know, Danny is the moon of my life. You know, she's the moon maiden of the story. And of course, yep, moon maiden, as, as you were saying, Emmett, moon maiden is one of those archetypes where you get, there's a lot of moon maidens in the books. Um, but Danny is the prime one. And of course, I, I always think about Nissa Nissa as a moon maiden because she dies and, and at the same time that the moon cracks open, so there's this sort of parallel between her and the moon dying at the same time. Nissa Nissa's death <laughs> gives birth to Lightbringer. The moon's death gives birth to mm-hmm. dragons, which are like Lightbringer. So in any case, we have Danny, bloody, dipping herself into the womb of the world at the same time that the actual moon appears to be floating on the water. So it's a, it's a nice parallel between the moon maiden and the moon, both dipping in the pond at the same time. But the shattering yep, yep. and reforming is good because it speaks of transformation, right? A destruction and a reformation. And Danny is very much like going through a transformative, like you said, a baptismal kind of a thing where she's, she's done, she's just done one ritualistic thing. She's eaten the horse heart. She's still got that blood on her. She's pregnant. And then she does this kind of baptism and comes out and has like a basically a ritualistic intercourse almost with Drogo afterwards. So the, <laughs> the whole thing is ritualistic. And it speaks of, like I said, a moon maiden that's, that's being transformed. And it's essentially the, the ultimate example of Danny's transformation is, of course, Drogo's pyre when she walks into the pyre and burns, but, you know, isn't burnt. And, uh, you know, it basically does what I call a death transformation symbolism sequence, uh, where she dies and is reborn. And Illyrio even speaks of it later. You know, the, the frightened child that sheltered in my manse, you know, died and was reborn on the Dothraki Sea. Um, and Azor High is prophesied to be a, yes. a hero reborn in the sea, which is what Danny actually does in a sort of a clever way here by being reborn in the Dothraki Sea. So that's all being prophesied here. And of course, she's pregnant while she does this. And the dragons are her children. She thinks about them as her children. So 
it's a repeat. Like when she walks into the pyre, into Drogo's pyre, she's not actually pregnant because she's already miscarried, but she's carrying the dragon eggs. She put the dragon eggs in the pyre. And so that symbolizes mm. pregnant Danny, essentially, the pregnancy, because that's what cracks open. And then we have the dragons, which are, quote, her children. So that's that's the first layer of what's going on here. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a that's terrific stuff. It's it's interesting. I was thinking about a comparison between this chapter and the chapter we did last week, Edward Twelve, in which Ned Stark learns that Robert whispered Lyanna's name in Cersei's ear as they were having sex. Drogo does an interestingly similar thing in this chapter as he whispers the stallion that mounts the world into Danny's ears as they're having sex. And we were talking about how Robert whispering that name was indicative of his kind of nostalgic fantasy and his projection into youth and a, a glorified possibility of life that wouldn't be what he thought it would be. And Drogo is kind of doing the same thing here in that he's... Mm. Like he's living up to this image of the stallion that mounts the world and that, that glorious fantasy in his head, and that's what he's embracing. And yeah, Danny is fulfilling that role. Even, even if you don't know the layers of symbolism, I think you get a sense off of the scene of these narratives swirling around Daenerys that these kind of prophecies and images and important mantras and themes are kind of starting to coalesce around her. And the entire cultures are starting to gather at her back, and we're going to kind of obviously see that grow over the course of the series. And you can see her acceptance and like the fierce pride in Drogo's eyes as, as he watches her eat the heart that she's kind of succeeding at fulfilling this narrative and taking control. His, his kind of loving acceptance of the name Rago when he says it's a good name, hmm. Daenerys wife, moon of my life. These are really, I think, probably the most humanizing moments for Drogo after that kind of quiet, intimate sex scene they had after their wedding. I think this this is the closest to really kind of connect with Drogo as a person and it gives you the sense that Danny has this new people and this new family and this new identity. And it, that, that comes through really strongly in these scenes. And it helps to have these symbolic resonances because that let, lets you know the identity and culture she's joining. Yeah, it really is interesting. It does. It speaks to a little bit of a power shift where Drogo's now seeing his future as going through Danny and, you know, her child. Yes. So, yeah, that, that, that's all really good. So here's here's the thing, right? So this this shattering and reforming language. OK, so. You just talked about the horse, the horse heart eating scene, all right? So there's a big, there's a really important link between the horse heart eating and this scene of her dipping in the womb of the world, okay? Because, so first we'll start off with going back to the horse heart scene. I was, I thought we were going to save the symbolism for later, but it seems like (laughs) you want to weave it right in the middle of it. So, like I said, Danny is the moon maiden. And the whole idea of the moon and the sun myth is that it says the moon, there once was a second moon in the sky. It wandered too close to the sun and was scalded by its heat. It was kissed by the fire of the sun. And it says it drank the fire of the sun. And the mm-hmm. that is why dragons breathe flame. The dragons that came out of the moon drank the fire of the sun. It's talking about sex as as the Lightbringer thing is. Like when Azor High stabs Nissa Nissa, one layer of that metaphor is 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 you know penetration and and the light bringer itself represents a child that's this is old ground i mean this is like not this yeah is very- the bloody the bloody sword of brandon stark i think makes this point more than anything else yeah. as barbara dustin remembers it as her eyes take fire in the winterfell crypts okay i think that definitely gets across the layer you're talking about so here. think about the astronomy of this okay the the way it's pictured is like the moon wanders too close to the sun and it cracks open the other part of that myth is that it's actually the comet that cracks the moon like moons don't break because they've wandered into an eclipse formation i mean when you say the moon wandered too close to the sun that's a way of describing an eclipse 
That's what it, lo- it looks right. like. It looks like literally the moon standing in front of the sun. So what we've figured out is that it seems to be that a comet struck the moon and blew it up at the moment of this eclipse. And this is a picture of Azor High, the sun king, stabbing Nissanissa, his wife, with Lightbringer. But it's also like the sun impregnating the moon with its fire, and they give birth to fiery dragon children. And that's the way the Carthian myth describes it. The moon, which is the wife of the sun, gets too close to the sun, drinks its fire, and it cracks open and gives birth to fiery dragons, who are fiery specifically because the moon drank the fire of the sun. So now let's go back to the horse heart scene. Danny is currently pregnant with Drogo's seed. So Drogo's already given Danny his seed, his fiery seed. And that's the stallion that's inside of her. So when she eats the horse heart, this is like a reenactment of the moon eating the comet or Danny receiving the fiery stallion seed of Drogo. And so she's eating this heart to give strength to the child. And so basically picture Danny like the moon and the red heart is the comet. That, that's easy because fiery heart symbolism is used for the comet all the time. That's what the red god and Rolorism is all about. It's the heart of a fallen star. It's a red bleeding star. So Danny's eating a, eating a bleeding heart. It's a perfect symbol of a bloody star. She eats it. And then she says, as soon as she's done eating it, she says, the stallion rides inside me. A prince is riding inside me. And so that's why I'm saying mm-hmm. the horse heart is a reenactment of her becoming pregnant with Drogo's stallion seed. And that's why she says, I'm pregnant now with the prince. So that's like the moon saying, I've now drinking the fire of the sun. So here's this quote from Tyrion, which ties it all together. Check this out. Only the brightest stars were visible all to the west. A dull red glow lit the sky to the northeast, the color of a blood bruise. Tyrion had never seen a bigger moon. Monstrous, swollen, it looked as if it had swallowed the sun and woken with a fever. Its twin, mm-hmm. its twin floating on the sea beyond the ship, shimmered red with every wave. What hour is this? He asked Makoro. That cannot be sunrise unless the east has moved. Why is the sky red? The sky is always red above Valyria, Hugor Hill. So here we've got a matching symbol of the moon and its twin floating on the water, just like with the womb of the world scene. But what does it say? It looks like the moon swallowed the sun. Absolutely. That's perfect. And I love, something I love about all this is you get this this sense in Danny that even if she doesn't realize all these magical forces working within her, she does get this this inner sense, this inner fire, she describes it, of her growing importance. She senses that she has more control over her destiny, even if she can't explain why. She senses her place in this world, even if she can't explain why. And how that ties beautifully into the drama of this chapter is when you put all of that together, her place in Dothraki culture and Valyrian culture and the symbolism you're talking about and how she's connected to astronom- astronomical events and magical events, doesn't Viserys start to seem really kind of small? Doesn't he seem to start seeming like a shadow of a snake by comparison, almost like he's being blocked out in an eclipse fashion by Danny here? He, he, I mean, he certainly feels that way, as we see with Jorah passing on to Danny regarding Viserys' attempt to steal the dragon eggs. And we, we really get this great scene in the show that we can't have in the books because of the POV structure where we see Viserys trying to steal the dragon eggs. And he tells Jorah that the reason he's doing it is because they love Danny now, that the story has moved on to Danny. She has become the protagonist of this arc so clearly. And the, the centerpiece around which everything orbits, both in a story sense and an astronomical sense, and he's, he's left on the side. And, He's clinging to his remnants of his Targaryen identity as represented by the eggs. But 
the eggs are fundamentally worthless to Viserys because he's not the one touched by the fire of the gods. He's not the one interacting with these powerful forces. They're just stones in his hand. In Danny's hands, they're going to be something else. And that's that kind of represents how Viserys is losing his mantle. He's no longer the the keeper of the flame, so to speak, no, when it comes to the Targaryens. That's, that's, I'm so glad you said that. So he's very much the failed Azor High character that's juxtaposed yes, against Danny yes. in here. So, for example, when he holds the sword up to Danny's chest and then lowers it to her belly, he's he's about to do an Azor High Nissa Nissa right there. He's got the sword. Yeah, it's exactly. right up to her heart. All he has to do is stab her, and this is a perfect Azor High Nissa Nissa ritual. But instead, he doesn't. And he gets killed. So he's like a failed Azor High. And what else does he do in that chapter? He tries to steal the dragon eggs and fails. And so you juxtapose those yes. two together. He's trying to kill Nissa Nissa and he's trying to get dragons. But he fails on both counts. So he's like this failed Azor High character standing next to the real Azor High, Danny. And it's it's a good it's a very good juxtaposition. As you were saying, that links to how Danny has kind of taken on the Rhaegar mantle and will fulfill what Rhaegar didn't and will do the same thing for her son. Danny is the true center of these stories, not these ineffectual for various reasons men who kind of orbit around her. And uh for what it's worth to give Viserys some sprinkling of credit. I do think he's right that Drogo was planning on cheating him. Judging by how the Cal talks about Westeros and the Narrow Sea in Danny's next chapter, that it's he'll never cross the Poison Sea, he doesn't care about Westeros. If that's the case, then was he ever planning to fulfill his part of the bargain to Viserys and, and provide him with 40,000 screamers to sweep the Seven Kingdoms? What do you think, Jeff? Do you think Drogo was ever planning on keeping up that end of the deal? I like like we said for the last Danny chapter, it, it's hard to say. I Again, like, like I said there, I feel like that so much of what Drogo's culture and what many cultures are based on is on the fulfillance of contract obligations. And if Drogo is being seen as this guy who breaks his word and breaks contracts that he basically makes, then are people going to follow him? Um, for the case of Viserys, I don't think there really been, would have been much repercussions for, for Drogo. As we see at the end of this chapter, Drogo is making a very clear case of delegitimizing Viserys very strongly to his people. So he has all of the Dothraki laughing at him. And so you can kind of get the sense that if Drogo said, no, we're, we're not going to invade Westeros, we're not going to fulfill our part of the bargain for Daenerys, then it probably wouldn't have mattered at all to to the Dothraki people. Uh, they don't really care about Westeros. They care even less about Viserys Targaryen. They actively loathe and despise him by the end of this chapter. So it's an open question, but I, I tend to agree with you is that Drogo never intended to fulfill his his contract obligations that he made with uh, with Viserys. Yeah, overall, I probably come down on that as well. Speaking of uh, cultural taboos, however, like the, the keeping of contracts, as Jeff made very hilariously clear in his synopsis, Martin goes out of his way again and again in this chapter to remind us that, hey, naked steel is a huge no-no in Vais Dothrak. That's a major taboo among the Dothraki. And I, th- I think uh, David nailed it that this is probably a holdover from when they were uh, one culture with the Jogos Nai, and this, they yes. brought this with them over the Bone Mountains. I think that is probably what happened. So 
When Viserys strolls in waving his sword around, it's not just a sign of him being a drunk, aggressive asshole. It, this is his cultural blindness at work. This shows how he has failed the test that Daenerys has passed, that he does not understand where he is, who he's dealing with. I mean, Danny says she knew what a drawn sword meant here, even if her brother did not. That is a sign and signification that she has crossed a threshold he's refusing to cross. And so the, the cultural politics are not just in the background. They're in the text. They're at the core of what's happening in this scene. They're driving the drama. But by threatening Danny and her child, Viserys is also forsaking his Targaryen identity because the key to his Targaryen identity is keeping Daenerys safe. That's his job as a Targaryen is you, you our family's in exile. We're down to our last couple members. You got to keep the bloodline going. You got to protect right. the family. You're the older brother. You're the head of the family. And now he's threatening her and her unborn child. Like what a, what an abandonment of duty on his part. And that's when he got, that's what he got executed for. Like contrast that. Yep. And that's why Martin puts that scene in just before that, where Danny hears about him trying to steal the eggs and she's like he could have had them so even with despite exactly. all the abuse and despite the fact that he's a huge dick and he's racist against the <laughs> dothraki and he's rejecting every bit of help that she tries to give him she still honors the fact that he that he is her brother and that he protected her right up until he abandons that and once he does that yeah. that's when she's like okay fuck you dude you're dying yeah. yeah, that's when that's when she starts thinking about him as this man who had once been her brother. That's such a key change it is. In, her, in her monologue. But so let's go. Sorry, Jeff. I'll, I just said real quickly, I want to button up on something Emma just said. So we were just talking about Viserys as a failed Azor high figure. He's also an example of Danny, like how not to lead a people, like how not to become mm-hmm. a leader yep. of a people. He's he's rejecting every attempt at assimilating and learning their ways. Essentially, what he was given to answer the original question is like, did Drogo ever plan on? Well, I think what Viserys was given was an opportunity. He wasn't given a promise mm. of Drogo's alliance. He was given a chance to win Drogo's allegiance. Like that Illyrio set him up with the, it's kind of like it's when somebody introduces you to like the drug dealer, like. They they introduced you. It's up to you to go over there and not fucking insult his girlfriend or pee in the corner or like, you know, I mean, like all all you got was the introduction. And that's what Illyrio gave to, to Viserys is a chance, an introduction to this very powerful ally and a good foot in the door with Danny being sold off in slavery to him. Obviously, that's a horrible thing. But, you know, that's the foot in the door. To the, right. to, to the, what's going on. And he essentially, he doesn't take any of that opportunity. He insults them. He doesn't want to learn the language. He doesn't want to wear their stinking clothes or eat their gross food. Yeah. And it all culminates in this example of like how not to win friends and influence people. So. <laughs> <laughs> No, you're absolutely right. I mean, Illyrio gave Viserys the the chance and the opportunity. At the same time, Illyrio was realistic enough to know the type of person that Viserys was and urged him to stay with him in Pentos instead of go out to the Dothraki Sea with Daenerys of the Dothraki and to kind of wait for Khal Drogo to fulfill his promise. But because Viserys... And, and here's where the kind of sympathetic portrait of Viserys kind of comes around is that Viserys believes that Drogo would cheat him, so he's going to go out to the Dothraki Sea to ensure that he fulfills his promise. And, you know, as much as, like, we're like, yeah, you're you're an idiot, you also have to, like, recognize that Viserys has a lot of history behind him. He was there when 
you know, when when in Bravos, when all the people stole all of the Dothraki, oh, the Dothraki, all of the Targaryen possessions that they had yeah. after after Sir Willem Derry died, he was there running from city to city to city, probably dealing with thieves. And then we we find out in in a in a Dance with Dragons that Viserys treated with the Golden Company at one point during his time to try and get them enlist them on his side. And I think the line is something like they ate his meat and drank his meat and then they laughed at him, sort of thing. So yep. at, while we're like, yeah, Viserys, you're a fucking asshole and you're a moron here, we do can kind of understand why he's so angry and also so distrusting of the people around him. He has that history that really kind of builds into like this climax of this of Viserys' arc, if you want to call it that, in Game of Thrones, where he has all of these people that have cheated him, stolen from him, swindled him out of stuff. And he's the guy here. He's like, it's happening again, man. It's 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 happening all over again. Even that Golden Company thing is another example of him being given an opportunity that he wasn't able to make the most of. Um, you know, and there's reasons why, like you said, that you can go back and. You can see like he had a pretty rough upbringing. He didn't have parents and he, you know, his parents were killed at age of nine or whatever it was. And he was shuffled around from city to city. But at the same time, his allies, such as he had, gave him opportunities. And he, because of who he was, he was not able to win the allegiance of the gold. He wasn't even able to show them the promise of something that could develop. They laughed him out of there, you know? Yeah. It contrast that to Fagon's in his speech at 15 or 16, which sure. very much impresses the Golden Company and wins them over. So, yeah, I mean, they're kind of one over anyways, but I mean, right, I'm, right. But but he plays the well, role. But no, but, yeah, but he, yeah. he changes their mind. Like the leader has one plan, which is like, oh, let's dip my, to- my, my grapefruit toes in the water, not do anything. And then Fagon's <laughs> like, no, actually, let's invade Westeros. So he definitely did change hearts and minds in that room in that moment. No, that's I think he's that's very true. He sees the opportunity, which Viserys can't. And I think. It's it's important to recognize both that, yeah, Viserys is being driven by this heart sickness and this loss over Targaryen identity, but what he's doing here is turning his sword on the most important part of Targaryen identity, his fellow Targaryen, his sister. And what he's demonstrating is that the crown matters more to him than she does. Fundamentally, that's what Viserys is expressing here. He's willing to kill her to get it, which dovetails with what he said in Daenerys' first chapter of, I let his entire Kalasar fuck you and her, their horses too, if that's what it takes. Yeah. It's this image of sacrifice, fundamentally. As, as LML was saying, there's the comparisons to Azor Ahai and Nissa Nissa, and you do get the sense Viserys is now saying, I will sacrifice Danny and her child on the altar of my crown. And that's... I mean, that's why I, 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 currently there's in the wake of a, like a five second snippet of Game of Thrones mm-hmm. season eight, the John Aris versus Johnson's shipping wars have restarted, which is just just does not interest me at all. <laughs> but one thing that irritates me as part of that fight is that Daenerys gets called a kinslayer for this scene. And that really irritates me because, first of all, she has no control over what's happening, really, as soon as Viserys pulls the sword out. Like, Drogo has to kill Viserys at that point. Viserys has broken the taboo. He's threatened his Khaleesi. The quote is, the Dothraki follows strength. If Drogo lets Viserys live at this point, he looks completely unmanned in the the eyes of his followers, in the eyes of the other cows. Politically speaking, Daenerys cannot stop him from doing this. But also because Viserys has just completely shattered the bonds of blood and affection that bind them at Mm -hmm. this point. When he levers, when he points that sword at Daenerys' belly, for me, it's over in terms of any, any, any obligation that Danny owes Viserys. He sealed his fate at that moment. 
Yeah, like as you were saying about the the scene with Viserys and Jorah that was in season one, but wasn't featured in this chapter in the Game of Thrones, again, because that POV structure works really well in Martin's case, but the show can kind of expand us out and show us things that aren't necessarily portrayed on page in the books. You do get a real sense of Viserys is like, no one has ever done this, what they did for Daenerys earlier today. And I, I know it's a little bit inverted from how this, this scene kind of plays out in the books, but you get the sense that Viserys is like seeing these honors being tossed onto his sister. And he's like, man, I was the one who was there like all along, like keeping Daenerys alive and keeping the Targaryen cause alive. And, you know, all that she ever did was just get married to some call. And, you know, that's why like, and and that kind of helps us to understand why Viserys draws his sword, even though it's, again, a completely boneheaded move. And, of course, which then is going to immediately transition to our first major death scene in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. Absolutely. And as I said earlier, apologies to Jory Cassell. I get it. I like Jory. He's a great guy. <laughs> but there's this scene specifically stands out to me as the first major death scene because it has so many resonances with all the death scenes and kind of big, horrible, climactic events that happen in the Song of Ice and Fire. Like, it's a king dying in the act of being crowned. Mm-hmm. Like, that's that, that has such great parallels with, like, Robert the King as soon as he gets his crown, Renly dying soon after he gets his, Rob dying horribly. The Iron Throne in, cutting, in his crown cutting apart the down. kings who sit on it. The Iron yeah. Throne cutting apart the kings who sit on it. It's just, it's all these signs that crowning a king does not bring glory, but it brings horror and death. Or Stannis' vision of the crown, like, burning him into ash from a storm of swords. You can definitely draw a straight line from that scene to this scene. When they're talking about Marcella, they said to crown her is to kill her. The same thing. It's right there. I mean, exactly. it's, it's a running theme for sure. It's it's also a classic, ironic reversal of a character's desires, a careful what-you-wish-for moment, where Viserys gets his quote-unquote crown, but it's not at all the crown he wants, which is, of course, classic literary device and shows up in A Song of Ice and Fire all the time, like... Uh, when Theon is rescued by Ramsay at Winterfell, but then Ramsay turns on him and kidnaps him and tortures him, or how uh, uh, Duran's heart's desire is fire and blood, but it keeps rebounding on his own family. <laughs> you know, it's 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 the classic flying too close to the sun, trying to grasp a star, overreaching and falling, to quote from John Connington. Mm-hmm. And Martin consistently uses that language that applies to both the thematics of the character and to the more astronomical imagery that LML talks about in both cases. And you have Viserys reduced to this just this pathetic state. Yeah. Like, he's intimidating in the moment because he's threatening Danny's life, but there's just nothing impressive or menacing about him at all. He's weeping and laughing at the same time. He has that smile that haunts Danny when he thinks he's going to get what he wants, and finally he's begging for his life. Like, he, he was so desperate to convince himself his entire life that he was the most important person in the world, that he was going to get what he deserved and get that crown on his head. And now he dies as just this afterthought, this secondary character that everyone's laughing at and making fun of, and just everyone just moves on. And much as I condemn Viserys for what he did with his final moments, there's, there is something really haunting about that. There is. And it, it's, it, it's a great transition from when we're introduced to Viserys as being the power, as being the powerful one in the Danny Viserys dynamic, where he's the one that's telling her how to dress, how to act, how to smile in front of Drogo to this point now where he's the one that is utterly powerless. He stands alone with his only sworn man, Jorah Mormont telling him that he's not telling Daenerys that he's really not the King. He's her brother. Yes, but he's not the King really. I mean, he leaves that out very poignantly out of the, the equation when he, when he's talking to Daenerys and we have Viserys of course reduced. He's pathetic. He's a piteous figure and we're all like, 
I, I, I feel like it's wretched. It's yeah. wretched. There's, there's no real catharsis for him dying. Like I, I get it. Like that Joffrey's death, like in a storm of swords is not, is, is made to be horrific. Right. It's like really awful the way he dies, but there is a little catharsis that him and him dying. There's no real catharsis in Viserys dying. It's watching a, a powerless man who has lost his mind getting, I guess, what was coming to him, but at the same time, not in a way that you're like, yeah, fuck yeah, Viserys died. I mean, you're not really supposed to say fuck yeah. Someone uh, here's some, saying, well, here's something for you, Jeff. Think about Viserys as in the same light as Quentin, as like yeah. Martin taking yeah. the uh, sort of, you know, the the young overconfident boy who thinks he's destined to save the world. And it's like, yeah, reality check. It's a little yeah. bit like that because Viserys thought he was going to ride out and like lead a nation of people that were foreign to him. And it's like, well, that's exactly what Daenerys is going to do. But the way that Viserys does it is like, again, how not to win friends and influence people. It's the example (laughs) of how not to do it. Yep. And then Daenerys just slots in like he was no dragon. Fire cannot hurt a dragon. Mm. So you can just see Daenerys taking over in that moment. She's just stepped into line. She is the Targaryen heir now. What is she doing in her next chapter? But trying to convince Khal Drogo taking on the Targaryen role of taking back Westeros on behalf of her and her, her unborn son. Yeah. So Emmett said something really interesting a second ago, and he's he's talking about where the myths and the plot art come together. And this is a really good example. Like the whole concept of reaching for a star. That's that's the Lucifer mm-hmm. Prometheus reaching for the fire of the gods theme. And it's one of the most important in the book. It's everywhere. And it's exactly where the astronomy and that mythology comes together with like the current characters. Because you see all of these characters have these moments where they try to overreach and and reap the consequences. So I just wanted to harp on that a little bit because that's you see over and over. So like with Danny and Viserys, right? The scene opens with Viserys holding up the dress to Danny. And what does he do right after that? He grabs her nipple and, and twists it. Uh, this is an Azor High Nissa thing. He's essentially attacking her breast, you know, and it happens a couple of other times where he tries to pinch her chest or, or poke her or push her. And then he finally points the sword at her chest. So it's like this running theme of like, he wants to be Azor High, but he's just, he's insufficient. And, and Emmett, even further back, you said, so he's very selfishly trying to take all these things. He's not trying to earn them. He's not trying to earn people's respect. He's not self-sacrificing. He's willing to let the entire Kalisar fuck Danny. He doesn't care. He'll do whatever it takes. That is exactly why we know that Azor High is not a hero. Because sacrificing mm-hmm. someone else through blood magic is not how you become the hero. You become the hero through self-sacrifice. And how does, yeah. how does Danny become the last dragon? She walks into the pyre herself. It's a it's a symbolic of self-sacrifice. And her entire arc is basically her learning how to self-sacrifice in order to be a leader and somehow balance that with her her ambitions and plans that she's ultimately going to have to abandon. I mean, that's that's where I see Danny's arc leading, like is basically her act of giving up the Iron Throne is going to be the pivotal moment for her when she turns out to not be a villain like all the bad theories say and she <laughs> takes her dragons and goes and fights the others to whatever extent that that needs to be done so i, I feel like that's exactly you know that's what she's wrestling with in marine is sacrificing herself for the people i mean she literally walks out amongst a plague infected populace to give them comfort because she can't let them in the city i mean 
people want to make her out to be a monster and she does crucify a bunch of people and she has, she walks the dark path sometimes and she's, you know, walking that line or whatever. But you can also trace a long line of her thinking of other people and self-sacrificing for other people. And so you see the beginning of that here where you see Viserys do it the wrong way. Hmm. Yeah. To sacrifice another person is, as you say, an act of cowardice and that you're not sacrificing yourself, but it's also a declaration of ownership over another human being that Viserys thinks Danny is his not just his sister, not just his ward, someone he has to take care of, but his property. And so, if he doesn't like what's going on with this deal, he can just treat Danny like a, a toy he can break out of petulance, because that's how he considers her. And to be fair, Drogo doesn't consider her that differently from that. He's not going to hurt her, but he does definitely consider Danny his property. Yeah. So Danny has to, has to thread this needle and find a way to unite these cultures that both think of her as property and come out ahead, which is, of course going to be a huge part of her arc going forward, especially towards the end of this book when she not only gives birth to the dragons at the end, but claims the Kalasar, even before she brings the dragons back, she yeah. claims the Kalasar in her own right as leader, and the, her blood riders are very much not on board with it until the <laughs> dragons come back. Yeah, and, and kind of like the same thing, kind of keeping the same Dothraki um, theme that we're going on, going with here. Transitioning to our foreshadowing groundwork portion of, of the podcast, we do have a couple quick notes here before we get into our major uh, discussion piece in that um, we, we kind of glanced over the folks who are, are the two calls that were up on the the high table or the high bench with Drogo, but their names are Ogo and his son Fogo. They have a place of high honor at the feast after the ceremony. And then two Daenerys chapters later, Drogo kills them both in battle outside of the Lazarine town. And I really enjoy kind of this note in Daenerys 7, which is a callback to Danny 5, where it says Ogo and his son had shared the high bench with her lord husband at the naming feast where Viserys had been crowned. Yeah, he had. But that was in Vase Dothrak beneath the Mother of Mountains, where every rider was a brother and all quarrels were put aside. It was different out in the grass. Different indeed. Can I just say that Ogo and Fogo as names remind me of Tolkien very much, yes. especially like The Hobbit, the names of the dwarves and their sons. It just just has that kind of little rhyming goofy stuff. Well, you know that, that just reminds me of, of the thirteen dwarves of the Hobbit. Sorry, I was I got too excited there for a second. You know that Drogo is Bilbo's father's name, right? Yep, okay. Yeah, of course. Okay. That I saw is that one conversation you had on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. love that. And then he died of the sea, right? You were just afraid of the, well, the and, water? Is that what the conversation And Well, was? the Dothraki have, in base Dothraki, they have those little hobbit holes. That's what they live in. They like little cave, like sort of yeah, little yeah. hills, you know, hollow hills or whatever. So That's cool. Yeah, no, George is great, man. He is that. You wouldn't think to compare Dothraki to hobbits because they're so obviously opposite, but it's, it's still there, like, very subtly. Oh, it's, it's kind of a nice irony, really, if you think about it. These massive horse riders versus, you know, three foot, six inch tall hobbits. Um, having fish, just finished rewatching Lord of the Rings, I, I'm very in in the vibe there, so to speak. But uh, we will talk about some of this a bit later on in significant depth, so we won't talk about this too much here. But there is a callback in Daenerys's ninth chapter from A Game of Thrones, where Danny in desperation tries to you know, speak about her heart eating as a way to justify her decision to allow Mirimaz Dor to perform blood magic on Caldrogo, where she says. I am Khaleesi, and I say it is not forbidden. Some of her blood writers had said, or some of Khal Drogo's blood writers had said, it is forbidden to use blood magic on, on Khal Drogo. And then she continues, In Vase Dothrak, Khal Drogo slew a stallion, and I ate his heart to give our son strength and courage. This is the same. The same. I mean, no, it, it's not the same, but that's okay. We will cover this at significant depth in, in about a month and a half or so when we get to, or two months rather, 
well, actually, well, like five months now when we get to Daenerys 10, Daenerys 9 and Daenerys 10. Well, that's always something I found interesting is when it comes to blood magic and the stories is that you have critiques of blood magic coming from characters whose cultures have things in common with blood magic. Yeah. Like, of course, it's terrible for Rolorites to burn weirwoods. But we've seen in Bran's visions that there absolutely is blood sacrifice connected to the Weirwoods. And we see, you know, we see Maester Crescent and Davos Seaworth, you know, fearing Melisandre and hating her red god. But hey, who chopped down all the Weirwoods in Westeros? Was, were that Rolorites or were that your ancestors, guys? Were those the Andals? <laughs> Why do you think you guys have castles and land where the Weirwoods used to stand? Mm-hmm. Because you cut them all down. So I, I do think that's a. An interesting argument Danny makes. Obviously, that is her own cultural blind spot, as we will get into at length in those chapters where she's not really reckoning with Dothraki culture and their fear of blood magic. But I do think that's something Martin does throughout the story, as while well. he presents the obvious horror of blood sacrifice and blood magic in general, he he does not pretend that the other cultures are somehow free of that right. or are pure and, and not connected to these questions of, of sacrifice and control, because they absolutely are. And I think you see a little bit of that with with the Dothraki here. And then finally, for our mini foreshadowing piece of this, we do have this line from Daenerys about joining the Dash Kaleen, where she's thinking about the the, the history of of the Dash Kaleen, how they had been once Khaleesi before their 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 calls had died, and they had all been dragged back here. And then she has this line: "Still, it gave Danny the shivers to think that one day she might be sent to join them, whether she willed it or no." Well, we do see that actually occurring in Game of Thrones Season 6 when Daenerys is dragged back to Vae's Dothrak by the Dothraki she encounters on the Dothraki scene, on the Dothraki scene, on the Dothraki Sea, uh, post-Marine. But it remains to me an open question whether this will occur in the books or not. No, not whether she'll go back to Vae's Dothrak. That's definitely happening. But the nature of her return to Vae's Dothrak, I think it's in the books, at least it's still up for discussion. Because when Kyle Jaco and his Kalisar finds Daenerys, she is standing right next to Drogo. And that's not something that we see in the end of season five, Game of Thrones. Uh, Drogo has departed at that point. So... I'm not sure whether she'll return back as this uh, kind of Khaleesi who will have to use her wits to kind of get out of Vase Dothrak and unite the Dothraki under her, or whether she'll be returning to Vase Dothrak atop Drogon and, of course, having the Dothraki kneel and bow to her and uniting the Kalasar into one giant Kalasar in order to press on towards Westeros. All in the same, it's one of those things that Martin's talked about where, you know, different pathways lead to the same ends. Something that struck me while you're reading that quote is, that line about Danny getting the shivers at thinking she might when you have to join them is so similar to how Bran talks about Bloodraven huh. when he's describing Bloodraven as this skeletal corpse and thinks one day I will be like him and he's horrified by it again. It's that connection between the Dashkalin and the Green Seers, both as these kind of sacred hive minds and keepers of the flame, keepers of the culture uh, that we kind of see. A- yeah, totally. I mean, the Dashkalin live in the Green Sea. The Green Seers live in, I guess, I don't know, the Green Seer Sea. So I mean, it's, <laughs> right. it's right there, and there's the same sense of trepid, the same sense of trepidation from our heroes. Like, do I really want to join these people? Uh, do I really want to be like this? Like, there's a lot of power here, but it seems kind of spooky. I don't know if I necessarily want to do this. Well, Danny and Bran are endlessly paralleled. Uh, it's one of my favorite oh, comparisons yes. in the whole story. So we were talking about the crones and the lake and stuff, and you, you, Danny was shivering thinking about being one of the crones. So here in the house of the undying, she sees she yes. sees this cool little vision. It says, uh, beneath the mother of mountains, a line of naked crones crept from a great lake and knelt shivering before her, their gray heads bowed. Yep, that's perfect. You guys know about the goddess Kali, right? What do you know about Kali? Anything? 
Educate us. So Kali, <laughs> Kali and, and I'm summarizing. So, you know, forgiveness if, if any of this isn't quite correct or detailed enough. But the basic idea of Kali is that she is the ultimate mother goddess who exists like before the universe and after the universe. Like before the universe existed, Kali was there. And at the end, Kali will devour everything. Okay. And so Noise. she represents, quote, the blackness between the stars. So like basically space, mm. the void. Okay. And this is also a concept known as the womb tomb or the cosmic womb tomb. And you know how Martin talks about, um, you know, winter and death. They aren't bad. They're just part of the cycle. Okay. Like, so, um, what's bad is when we get stuck on winter and death, right? So like, it's the kind of the house of black and white thing. Like they appreciate death as a natural part of the life cycle and winter, even though it sucks, and the long night especially sucks. Winter, as long as it gives way to spring, is an important time of cleansing and recuperation. And, you know, we've got to have it all. It's part of the cycle. So Kali represents the death cycle. It represents uh, basically where you go when you're destroyed, but it also is the womb. So it's the tomb where you go when you're dead, but also the womb from which... Uh, the dying are reborn and three headed trios is a reference to this, right? So they say that the first head of trios devours the dying. The third one, the, emer the reborn emerge from, I don't know what the middle head does. So the middle, yeah, the middle that. head represents the bardo, like the in between realm, the, the sort of the, the underworld, the reset. That's Kali. Kali represents that womb tomb. Okay. And so we've got this lake called the womb of the world and it's described as a black lake that's supposed to be bottomless. So this is already a mirror of space here. It's a void. It's a bottomless black void, a sea of stars. What's floating in that sea? Of course, the moon that's shattering and reforming in the sea. And so the Dosh Kaleen are a reference to Kali. Because this black lake from which the Dash Kaleen okay. come from is actually a representation of that void. And there's a very strong Kali depiction uh, in the Tent of Dancing Shadows, as I call it, where Miriam Azdor is summoning shadows that dance on the walls of the tent while she basically kills baby Rego and, and does this weird blood magic thing. Well, shadows dancing is what Kali is all about. Like dancing Kali is one of her big things. Uh, I won't even explain the whole myth, but it's just, it's a very important thing. And uh, so, and she's also associated with shadows and a shadow dance and all okay. that stuff. Uh, the boat that picks up da Davos called Shayala's dance. Shayala is just another word for Kali. And, and so Martin is giving us this idea of dancing Kali um, as it's, it's like a doom bringing dance. Like it's a dance that shakes the universe. Okay. So like the, the giants being woken from the exactly earth, is exactly where I was going with that. So you, you, um, just to bring it back to this specific scene, when the moon shatters and reforms, that's showing you that this black lake, it is the void. It's the womb tomb. The, 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 the moon shatters, but is also reformed from it. So it's a death and a rebirth from this cosmic womb tomb. So it's a very cool bit of Kali mythology that's loaded in Danny's arc. And there's more to it than that. But of course, as ever, 
you know, I want to try to keep it, keep it limited or whatever, but it's, it's pretty fun. Um, it's, I, it, it's really cool to mention because, you know, the more obvious mythologies are like Norse myth and Greek myth and stuff like that. But George, he sure, does sure. go further afield and he, he goes to the East and he gets some Hindu and Vedic myth and he gets some Japanese and Chinese myth in there. I've, I've found Mesoamerican myth and Egyptian stuff. So it's fun to mention the ones that are a little more off the beaten path. Yeah, yeah, that's a, it makes perfect sense for Essos, especially if you're, you're going to draw from myths from 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 Eurasia and abroad. That makes perfect sense. I think it's interesting. Also, you see similar rebirth imagery with obviously you associate rebirth imagery largely with with women, which makes sense because we're talking about the womb and birth and and everything else. But I was thinking a lot of the imagery you're talking about there is also resonant with Davos a lot of the time, where he's kind of reborn out of the black water and mm-hmm. he he gets saved by a ship, as you say, and he kind of emerges from this cave beneath Dragonstone Reborn. He emerges from the belly of the whale Reborn when you get to the sisters. And that stuff runs really strong with him. And of course, Davos' storyline is just overwhelmed with aquatic imagery yes. and imagery of mermaids <laughs> yes. and fish yes. and sea lords so, so, of all so kinds. Check, so check this face, out. Obviously. When Davos is reborn from the black water... So once again, black mm-hmm. water, okay? He he gets washed up on the spears of the Merlin King and he hears the whisperings of the mother. And what is Danny hearing yep. in the Dothraki Sea when she's being reborn? She hears the whisperings of Quave through the stars. And that's another Kali image because literally Quave's face her face is the stars. And and the stars you can picture like the stranger, you know, the the stars are like the eyes and the blackness is like the shadowy face. So this is like literally the starry wisdom of Quave. It's this like and that's Quave is basically a Kali incarnation. She speaks to Danny from like across the void. She's she exists in a shy, the shadowy black place that's synonymous with like a hell or an underworld. So it's it's just loaded. I, I just love it. The Kali Danny Quave uh, matrix there. But it's cool that you mentioned Davos because it's very parallel. He's reborn from the black water and then he's hearing the whisperings of the mother. And she's like, you killed us. You know, you killed the gods and <laughs> you called the right. fire. We didn't start the fire. Absolutely. <laughs> so transitioning into our discussion section for the episode. Clearly, the prophecy of the Dashkalin should be taken at face. I'm sorry, value, I had to laugh right? at that. Were, were we not in the discussion p- portion already? Or <laughs> <laughs> I, missed, I missed a big instruction. The, the official outline. I'm discussion. doing this all wrong. Exactly. <laughs> so clearly, the prophecy of the Dashkalin should be taken at face value, right? Rago is the stallion who mounts the world. Of course, yes, of course, they say so. Yes. And Martin would would never undercut. A prophecy in that manner. He Never. always presents it as 100% face value. But there is, of course, the small little detail that Rago comes out a stillborn monster with wings and grave worms who's been dead for years. That kind of prevents you from conquering the planet for the most part. So, but even beyond the fact that Rago obviously can't fulfill this prophecy, there are strong signs that point to someone else of the fulfillment. And we're going to talk here about whether it's Daenerys or, or Drogo who fulfills it. I, I personally lean towards Daenerys riding Drogo and kind of the two of them united together as being the fulfillment of it. But you have this line in this in the scene where after Daenerys at the heart and the prophecy is being made, where the Dashkalin, the old woman trembled and looked at Danny almost as if she were afraid. Is that Martin's way of sneakily confirming that Danny herself is actually the one being witnessed in the vision? As LML was saying earlier, there's that great scene later in the book where Danny opens what she thinks is Rhaegar's helm, but sees herself herself fulfilling that that prophecy, that narrative of the last dragon, and that dovetails so well with what Aemon Targaryen says in *A Feast for Crows* about the analogous Valyrian prophecy of the prince that was promised. No one ever looked for a girl, he said. It was a prince that was promised, not a princess. 
Rhaegar, I thought. The smoke was from the fire that devoured Summerhall on the day of his birth, the salt from the tears shed for those who died. He shared my belief when he was young, but later he became persuaded that it was his own son who fulfilled the prophecy, for a comet had been seen above King's Landing on the night Aegon was conceived, and Rhaegar was certain the bleeding star had to be a comet. And here's the line that applies to all the hive minds and prophets in the series. What fools we were who thought ourselves so wise. <laughs> the error crept in from the translation. Dragons are neither male nor female. Bar saw the truth of that, but now one and now the other, as changeable as flames. So maybe that applies to this prophecy here, that the Dothraki are kind of projecting and assuming, the Dashkalina are assuming, well, this has to be a man. This has to be a Kal. It can't be a Khaleesi. Man, man, what, man. Uh, exactly. <laughs> but the, the person they're actually seeing is Daenerys. Because at the end of A Dance with Dragons, of course, Danny returns to the Dothraki Sea with Drogon. She's embracing fire and blood. She's encountering her old enemies, Jaco. So it... Following the broad strokes of season six, it would seem that she, not Rago, is the one with the potential to unite the Dothraki at her back. And as LML pointed out earlier, we do appear to see that happening in the House of the Undying, as the Doshkaleen repent of their choice of her son and instead embrace her, albeit under a threat of combustion. <laughs> well, here's here's a question I have. So when I was reading it for this this chapter, when I read that line about the old woman trembled and looked at Danny almost as if she was afraid, I had a weird kind of conspiratorial thought, which I normally don't have in, in reading the song by Sin Fire. I'm really not up for like the conspiracy theories necessarily so much, but I did wonder whether the woman actually saw Daenerys as the stallion who mounts the world, but wasn't going to fucking say that in front of like all of Cal Drogo and all the dudes around there because... I like that. I like that. Maybe she saw that Rego was going to die, and she's like, uh, "No, I'm not going to fucking say that." <laughs> Come on, I'm, I'm not. I'm not telling. He's going to shoot uh, the messenger if I tell him to on the ego ray. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on the adjic, adjic No, I like that. I mean, it's what would she have done if she had seen that? Yeah, you're right. She wouldn't have said shit. You're probably right about that. <laughs> She's not going to yeah, be was, like, uh, we have a, made a great mistake, actually. Um, uh, <laughs> we want, we're looking for the filly who mans the world. <laughs> it's, uh, we saw Rego. Yeah, we, we saw Rego do as the stallion who mounts the world. Okay, let's get on to the, uh, down to the lake and uh, we'll just move on as quickly as we can. Off to the feast after that. But no, I, I, I definitely believe that the stallion who mounts the world is Daenerys or Daenerys on Drogon. I think that's very much what they're seeing here whether they're misinterpreting the vision intentionally or not is is up for discussion but yeah obviously rego dies so he's not going to be the stallion amounts the world i do think it's interesting to kind of counteract what i was saying is that one of the visions that danny has in the house of them dying correct me if i'm wrong guys is that she sees a a copper was that in in the house of the dying or in daenerys nine yes where she's it's the dying a tall lord with copper skin yeah. and silver gold hair stood beneath the banner of a fiery stallion, a burning city behind him. Yeah. So an, an image of what could have been with Rago. But I mean, that gets back so strongly to what LML was talking about earlier about these failed potential messiah figures, these would-be Azora highs, these not-the-hero characters. Yeah. Rago himself is one of those. Rhaegar, who he's named in honor of, is also one of those figures. Aegon VI, Rhaegar's son, who he assumed was the... One that the Song of Ice and Fire was all about. Another potential messiah killed in infancy slash childbirth. And as we were saying, this dovetails with what happens in Viserys in this chapter. He thought of himself as the chosen one, the exile prince destined to return and retake his kingdom from the usurper Robert Baratheon. But it wasn't Robert who replaced him in the end. It was his own sister. And this is 
Something you see over and over in A Song of Ice and Fire, the plight of the also-ran, the second best, the unloved child, and what they are driven to do because of that. That's Stannis' story, of course. That's Theon's story. That's Quentin's story, as LML was saying. And maybe above all, that's Tyrion's story. Jon is arguably the one to break free of the cautionary tale and become a model in his own right. But Danny is the center, as we have saying, around which so much orbits. And every everything else kind of falls away from that. And in that regard, of course, her story is really only just getting started. But that's something I really like about the series is that it, it dwells on what it feels like to be in the shadow of the greater force. Like when you see Barbary and Theon reckoning with, yeah, the Starks are great, but man, it sucks to be right outside the Starks. <laughs> it sucks to want to be a Stark and not be able to be one. And I think you, I think you see that come through really strongly when you get to the themes around Rago and Rhaegar. And the idea that Danny is actually the stallion, that they are failed messiahs. They are the, the bones of the dreamers that brand glimpses, but not the messiah themselves. Great stuff. I, I, it's great stuff. And I think, um, <laughs> you know, like, so let's, do you want to get into then some of the more specific clues that point to Danny and Drogon as the yep. stallion? Cause I mean, I can't, I can't yes. even touch the thematic commentary that you just laid out. I mean, that's. You know, in typical Quentin style, you pretty much drop the mic on that. So, <laughs> oh shucks, son. No, yeah, bring bring the bring the clues by all means. Okay, so first of all, dragons and horses are conflated quite a lot, especially in Danny's Dothraki yep. chapters. Um, the the Dothraki believe that the stars are either a fiery Kalasar that gallops through the sky. Or the spirits of the valiant dead, which is really the same thing. Essentially, picture the ancestors of the Dothraki riding fiery horses in the sky. That's what the, how they view the stars. And when Drogo dies, the first star, of course, is the comet. And so now we have this idea that the fiery horse that Drogo rides is actually a red dragon, because the the comet's mm. called the dragon's tail right in that in that scene. And of course, Drogo is serving the role of that Azora High to Danny's Nissa Nissa all throughout her chapters. That's why he's compared to Aegon the Conqueror, and he's got a couple other uh, dragony descriptions. Uh, after he dies, he's quote unquote sort of reborn as Drogon the Black Dragon. Um, so there's all these ideas that he gets that he's playing that role of Azora High who's reborn in some way. But to get back to the point, dragons and horses are are cross-associated with each other, especially in this idea of the stars. So the idea that the stallion who mounts the world could be a dragon makes a little more sense in that, in that sense, because we, we just saw Drogo's stallion fly over the world, in it, but it was a red comet, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So then you get to, there's, uh, there's some fun clues. Uh, I'm going to bounce over to John chapters where he does astronomy. You know, I love that. So he's looking up at these like so many stars, you know, we have the same constellations, but we give different names, us and the wildlings. And he goes through ice dragon, shadow cat, yada, yada. The king's crown was the cradle to hear her tell it. The stallion was the horned lord. So the stallion who mounts the world is a horned lord. But that's 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 a dragon. It could be a dragon uh, because dragons are horned uh, very prominently. Uh, the horns are called out to all the time when George describes him. So let's think about Drogon as a horned lord. And then we're going to go back to the scene where Drogon comes to Danny in the last A Dance with Dragons chapter. And he's implied as a king. Um, but there's one other John quote with the horned lord I want to read, too. So it says, The west had gone the color of a blood bruise, but the sky above was cobalt blue, deepening to purple, and the stars were coming out. 
like a meteor shower. The stars were coming out of the sky. John sat between two Merlins with only a scarecrow for company and watched the stallion gallop up the sky. Or was it the Horned Lord? Hmm. So you get this idea, like he's galloping up the sky. I mean, that's mounting the world, right? We're riding the skies. It's this flying horse idea that's happening. So now we go back over to, like I said, the last uh, A Dance with Dragons Danny chapter. Three times there's something with the grass that happens, and it leads up to Drogon appearing. Uh, so here's, here's these three quotes in succession. It says... Uh, the wind, she told herself, the wind shakes the stalks and makes them sway. Only no wind was blowing. The sun was overhead, the world still and hot. Midges swarmed in the air, and a dragonfly floated over the stream, darting here and there. And the grass was moving when it had no cause to move. So that's, first of all, that reminds you of Bran's chapter, or Theon, when in the Winterfell Godswood, right? Yes. And, and this is right after the grass has been literally whispering to her, just like the trees whispering to Theon. So again, we see this green sea, green sea or Dothraki sea thing happening. But continuing with the, the grass quotes, then right like one line after that, it says, From the corner of her eye, Danny saw the grass move again off to her right. The grass swayed and bowed low as if before a king, but no king appeared to her. And what did appear was a Dothraki rider. It's it's the it's the mm. one that pops out and he holds still for a second. And then he sees Drogon and then all of a sudden he snaps out of it like he was as if waking from a dream. It said and he rides off almost like the first rider emerging from the womb of the world that way that went right around. Boom the horse. and he's very much the archetypal <laughs> rider absolutely. And so right. then so remember that line: the grass swayed and bowed low as if before a king. And then we get this rider. Mm-hmm. So a second later. As he's look, it says the dragon was a mile off, and yet the scout stood frozen until the stallion began to wicker in fear. Then he woke as if from a dream, wheeled his mount about, and raced off through the tall grass at a gallop. Danny watched him go. When the sound of his hooves had faded away to silence, she began to shout. She called until her voice was hoarse. That's cool. So she's becoming a horse now. And Drogon Drogon came, snorting plumes of smoke. The grass bowed down before him. Danny leapt onto his back. She stank of blood and sweat and fear, but none of that mattered. To go forward, I must go south. Uh, So then they they fly off into the sky. So And then while she's riding Drogon, she also thinks um, a different part of this chapter, but she recalls riding Drogon out of the Miranese pit and compares it to riding a horse. And she's like, well, when you whip a horse, it goes away from the whip, but the dragon goes towards the whip. So there's this constant like dragon horse running theme like all through this chapter. And then we get this thing where actually there's one quote before this where she wonders if the Dothraki horse god would part the grass and claim her for his starry Kalasar so she might ride the Nightlands with Khal Drogo. So that's actually so okay. that's actually where it starts. It's a threefold pattern where okay, so the Dothraki horse god is going to part the grass. Then we get this archetypal rider with the grass bowing low as if he was a king, and then we get Drogon, who is the real king, if you will, the the stallion that mounts the world. Yeah, that's great. It reminds me of like Apollo's fiery chariots crossing the sky. Yeah. And those those horses ferrying the sun king along and yeah, that's and there's fire and horse imagery associated really all over the novel. You get that the novel, the series. You get that great scene at the end of A Clash of Kings in which Theon sees his horse Smiler on fire and rearing into the sky. You uh I think Melisandre has this vision of a horse with fiery eyes or fire streams that points to the rice wells and the dustins at Barrowton. She's some some kind of vision of that at the wall. So yeah, I think you can see that 
it's all part of this kind of transformation process that you, you read about so well and ties into Danny's arc that it's it's both that horses are associated with dragons, but also that it's the horse becoming the dragon. Yeah. It's Daenerys, Daenerys rising from the Dothraki Sea on her new steed, which is similar to a horse but can fly and breathe fire. So she's kind of moving up this the fiery ladder, like you were talking about with Quaith. Like, I love the that phrase, the fiery ladder, as a, as a metaphor for the overall process of becoming more magical and more powerful and, you know, climbing too high. And I think you can you can definitely see that with with Danny and Drogon, and I think that's that all ties together with her as the stallion or her on Drogon as the stallion for sure. So think yep. about think about Drogo at, at this funeral pyre, right? So Danny sees him, his fiery spirit in the pyre, and it looks like he's riding a smoky stallion. And so mm. that that smoky stallion rises up to the stars, and that's why the Dothraki always have that smoke hole in their tents. Like in the in the in this chapter where they're given the prophecy of the stallion amounts the world, it's noted that the smoke rises up through the hole to the stars and the moon. You know, because that's those are the you know stars are sacred to the Dothraki. So you have this in the pyre. You have Drogo riding this gray smoky stallion up to the sky, where he exchanges it for the Red Comet as his new stallion in the fiery Kalasar. So he's switching from a horse of smoke and fire into a comet dragon, which is now his steed, quote unquote. So it's the same pattern of a horse to a dragon. So like, upgrade ya, you know? Exactly. <laughs> and that's what and that's what Viserys wants to do, and that's what Quentin wants to do. Uh, but they can't, because no. they're, they're not actually the, the chosen figure. They're not as or high. Yeah, Brackens too, they suck. <laughs> exactly. Brackens versus Blackwoods, exactly. Well, they perfect. they poisoned the weirwood tree because, oh gosh, don't get me started. We better not. <laughs> it is though. It is a model though. Okay, so I you know, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get started. No, you got me. You got me. So I know you guys love Blackwoods and Brackens, so you will appreciate this, right? So the Blackwoods have the weirwood tree, which is half dead, and supposedly it was poisoned by the Brackens, right? And the Brackens are like fiery horses. That's that's or at right. least. Uh, uh, um, what's his name? Bitter Steel is. Um, well, oh, no, certainly. I guess even the black, even the Bracken sigil, the horse is like fiery, isn't it? It's a red stallion on a gold shield, so it definitely has those color associations. Okay, okay. the and red then, and the gold. So there and you then go. specifically, Bitter Steel put out Blood Raven's eye, correct? Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Okay, so you have this idea of the the Brackens attacking the Blackwoods. So you have this fiery horse poisoning the tree, the Weirwood tree. Okay. So now think about the Grey King myth where you have the thunderbolt setting the tree on fire. Well, the thunderbolt is is a symbol of the meteor. In my that's my estimation that this 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 myth about a thunderbolt that sets a tree on fire and brings the quote fire of the gods to the Grey King. This is talking about a meteor because man has always thought of meteors as coming from heaven and bringing the fire of the gods to man. They're made of this weird metal that they didn't have, you know, because it's the first place man found steel. Or whatever. Sure, sure. So basically the Bracken Blackwood is a mirror to that myth of a meteor striking okay. a tree and setting it on fire and killing it, with the Bracken fiery horse being the meteor and the dying Blackwood tree being the tree that got, you know, killed. So there you yeah. go. I like it. And as you were saying about Danny Ten, obviously all of this imagery kind of comes to a head at that chapter at the end of this book and we are we're uh, Dying to have you on for that episode as well. Once we get uh, get to it later on this year, that's going to be a great time. But I think that pretty much wraps us up for uh, Game of Thrones Daenerys Five. Unless anyone else has any other other stray ones to throw in. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. Obviously, as always, and thanks so much for coming on, David Beers, aka Lucifer Means Lightbringer. 
thank you for having me. I had a ton of fun. Hopefully, I think I'm a little bit afraid that the section where I was trying to explain the moon drowning and I compared <laughs> it to Tyrion's moon drowning, I'm a little, it came off a little jumbled. So hopefully uh, that made enough sense for people to at least be curious to sort of check out the rest of what I've got going on. But, it, you know, sometimes when I try to explain a longer theory in five minutes, I listened back to it. I'm like, hmm, that didn't go the best. You know, sometimes they come out good, sometimes they didn't, but... I followed you. Well, I'm, the important thing is, like, I, sometimes I, I, I go too deep in the weeds. Let's, let's step back, right? If the moon cracked open and gave us moon meteors, some of those moon meteors would fall in the sea, right? I mean, just it's the simple odds. Like, two-thirds of the world sure. is made of water. So we've got this myth of the sea dragon out in the Iron Islands. The Grey King supposedly slew the sea dragon and then possessed its living fire. Okay? But the thing is, if a, if a dragon coming from the moon is a meteor, then a sea dragon who, quote, drowns whole islands in its wrath is mm. probably just a meteor that fell in the water near the land and triggered giant tsunami tidal waves. And oh, what do we see when we look around the Iron Islands but a bunch of collapsed land and signs of earthquake and flooding and trauma, basically. And so that's, that's the sea dragon myth is a lot of things. But one of the things that it refers to is an is a impact near the Iron Islands, I believe. And so that's why we see over and over... It's one of the reasons why we see moons drowning. Like the drowning moon is all over the place. So the, the wayward bride, you know, Asha's like, drown me for a fool. Let's splash some blood on the moon. The trees are scratching at the moon. And there's all this stuff about, you know, basically drowning moons and drowning moon women. And then we have Danny going into the womb of the world. The moon is shattering and reforming at the same time. So there's a whole running theme of moons being drowned. And it, ref it refers to, at one level, the very simple idea of moon meteors falling into the sea around the time of the long night. But it also refers to Nissa Nissa going into the green sea of the Weirwood Net. And that's the one where if that sounds interesting, then you're going to have to tune in to Mythical Astronomy of Ice and Fire, which you can find at lucifermeanslightbringer.com. And uh, thanks for having me on. So there you go. It's my parting shot. Yeah, man. Well, I hope that people are moon curious after listening to this podcast and will definitely check out your stuff. I've been a subscriber of yours on iTunes for many, many years now. Well, actually, probably only about two or three years, but still at the same time, it feels like many, many years now as we wait for the winds of winter to come out. So as always, please rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, all the places you can find our stuff. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash not a cast ASOIAF, where at the end of this month, the very last day of this month, actually, we'll be finishing our review of Fire and Blood Volume 1 with uh, talking about the Regency of Egg on the 3rd. So feel free to check out that out. That'll be available for all $5 and above patrons. Um, you can follow us on social media at notacastasof and our email at notacastasof at gmail.com. Drop us a line. We love hearing from you guys. Personally speaking, you can find me at Brendan B. Fish. I was about to say at, at Port Quinn. <laughs> but you can find me personally speaking at Brendan B. Fish. My website is warsandpoliticsdevicesandfire.wordpress.com. Wow, you guys have become a hive mind, huh? Exactly. <laughs> Almost, yeah. And you can find me at Port Quentin on Twitter or at portquentin.tumblr.com. Join us next time as Ned Stark visits his king's deathbed in Eddard 13. A uh, wonderfully devastating chapter that oh, I'm yeah. enjoying crying about. Uh, but uh, LML, as you mentioned, you're at luciferMeansLightbringer.com. You also want to plug your YouTube channel for us? Yeah, that one's also called uh, Lucifer Means Lightbringer. Uh, and if you basically, if you search Lucifer Means Lightbringer, you're going to find my stuff pretty easily. So that's really all you have to Probably, remember. Probably, I would imagine. <laughs> good, a good point there. It's quite distinctive. 
I, yeah, and, and like I said, anything that's not me that comes up in that search is a link you probably don't want to click. <laughs> um, so, just fair warning, you True. know, there's there's some weird stuff out there on the internet. Uh, but uh, I have been doing some short videos lately. So for those of you who find my material like long and to in the weeds and all that stuff, I've been condensing down some of the main ideas into what I'm calling Elemelon 13, although it's kind of a joke because they're about 15 to 16 minutes or whatever. But that's, you know, again, part of the joke. Everything takes longer than we expect in the Song of Ice and Fire fandom, right? So. But if you, like I said, Absolutely. if you want to get into my stuff, and, and like I said, the longer stuff is too long, then look for the ones called LML and 13. I've done Dawn is the Original Ice, part one and two so far. And I'm going to have another one about the White Walkers and the Kingsguard symbolism. So it's a lot of, if you like, if you like House Dane, if you like talk about Dawn, if you like talk about Ancient House Stark and War for the Dawn stuff, then check out those videos. At yeah. Lucifer Means Lightbringer YouTube page. Absolutely. And I've also got uh, Between Two Weirwoods YouTube channel, which I've actually had Jeff on, and I'm going to get Emma on very soon. Um, and we yes, do ba- and we basically do discussion panels. We pick all different topics. Sometimes it's a social topic. Sometimes it's a symbolism or mythology topic. It could be a world building or a writing topic. Basically just, you know, anything you might see at a, at a con, but with like a two-hour live stream panel, and we have rotating guests and... So if you like that, it's between two weirwoods with a number two in between the words between and weirwoods. <laughs> and uh, we did a two-part religion panel with Jeff. And uh, we've got plans, Emmett and I, we've got plans to do a uh, sort of workings of magic panel where we're going to get yes. really nerdy and talk about the mechanics of how some of this stuff might work, the horns and whatever else. So I don't even know who else we're going to get on that. We've we've had We've been trying to schedule that for like three months, but... It'll happen, so... That'll be great, and obviously we'll, we'll uh, advertise that and play that up as we get close. So thank you again for coming on, and like I say, next week we're doing Edward 13 with Robert on his bed of blood, so look forward to that, guys, and thanks everyone for listening. See you next time. See you guys.